Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It's Wednesday morning, October the 4th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So we had such a boring run in American politics. Um, the GOP voter was told via mailers and, and radio ads and television ads, send me to Washington and I'll get the job done. And year after year, cycle after cycle, Politician after politician, um, the voter delivered, and nothing happened. Nothing happened in a conservative fashion. Government didn't get smaller. The budget didn't get balanced. We didn't reform some of the entitlements that we discussed yesterday. Um, and those who believed that government was getting out of hand, it was becoming um, too controlling, too intrusive, too punitive, um, we just kind of sat by and wondered, what do we do about any of this? I mean, it, what what happens when um, the people we elect, it's a binary choice. I'm not voting for the other person because they tell me things. At least this person gives me lip service. At least this person says things that I believe in. I kind of sort of doubt whether they'll do it or not. But I can't vote for the alternative because it. I mean, it just openly says things that I personally disagree with. And we just kind of strolled along until you're ready for the famous saying, mm -hmm. it works till it don't work no more. And the way of right. conducting business previously, I was thinking about it driving over this morning. I remember not many moons ago, I sat behind this mic and said, never before has anyone, including myself, hosted a radio show that can say the president of the United States is under federal indictment. That's baby crap. <laughs> Right. Alongside what these dudes have done, <laughs> dudes and a chick, Nancy Mace. I talked talk to a mutual friend. Uh, I know Nancy a little bit. I don't know her well at all. Nancy was very involved in Nikki's campaign when I was running for governor. She was at the state house uh, a good bit, and um, you know we're acquaintances by by no stretch of the imagination would we be friends. But I reached out to someone that I knew. I knew her fairly well in her orbit. I said, I need her to get on uh, the radio show with us. And Nancy's kind of an interesting and perplexing uh, political dynamic. Um, <laughs> says Trumpian things at times. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can't do that now. i got to go to this prayer breakfast. Remember when she right. told her? Oh, that's right. Yeah. She told old Bo. <laughs> you, know, you know, I think old Bo tried to sidetrack Nancy one morning yep. recently, and Nancy said, stop. We can't do that. Don't have time. i got to go to Tim's prayer breakfast. Um, oh, and she says that at the prayer breakfast, right? And you know, um, you know, that's just not what she would expect. Right. Right. You know, a, a fine and refined politician, member of the uh, Congress, to say at a at a prayer breakfast. Anyway, um, I was once again texting with this friend of mine that that knows Nancy fairly well. He said, "I'll try." You know, I don't know why she would come on your show, and I said, "Of course you do." We're spectacularly shaping the narrative in the in the epicenter of American politics, the PD region of South Carolina. Mm -hmm. He responded, LOL, 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 Right, um, right. And in all honesty, I mean, Nancy has nothing to gain. Right. She's not coming on this show. She we doesn't represent our... Yeah, we don't broadcast in Charleston. But she did say that her responsibility lies to the citizens of South Carolina. Well, well she, there we are. Well, she didn't say the citizens are. of Charleston. Right. She didn't say the, um, the transplants wearing skinny jeans carrying around their poodle on King Street. She didn't say any of that, and that's why she left the door open. So I'm inquiring about getting Nancy to come on 
getting doesn't have a G on it, getting Nancy mm-hmm. now to come on the show and explain uh, why she did what she did. But at the end of the day, um, Matt Gates, I've got a nickname for Gates. You ready? Gates of hell. Because um, <laughs> he's one of these he's one of these fire-breathing uh, Republicans. Now, I'm going to level with you. I, I'll preface any of the following commentary with this. I don't trust Matt Gates as far as I can throw him. I have zero and, and I hear what you're saying, but let me ask you this. He's a fighter, right? Yeah. And he appears to, to, I mean, he's taken he's on. A, he's a brand. Right. He's a brand. But don't we talk about, you know, some of Trump's appeal is he's a fighter mm-hmm. and he doesn't mind scrapping it up. I mean, Gates, even though he's kind of fighting with the, you know, his own leadership and his own party, he still has. has he, but but what is Gates? He's a fighter. Okay. Okay. Let's back up. Does he get any credit for that? Well, I guess is my question with you. With some. I mean, to me personally, I think he's a grandstander. I mean, I don't know how I feel about the whole maneuver yesterday. Well, I, mean, I, I support the maneuver. Okay. I mean, I, I, that's odd. I mean, I understand. I, I got lectured to yesterday by some of my insiders about my support. Don't you get on that damn radio and say <laughs> he did the right thing. Don't you do that. You know better than that. I mean, you know better than, you know, some of these renegades and, and um, you know, so, some of these outlaws, some of these, what, what a backstabbing, um, you know, going against the, the, the party in general. It, it's, it's really simple. I made a note this morning. You ready? When 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 McCarthy became speaker, he made a deal with about twenty or so holdouts. I mean, this is my interpretation of what happened. I'm not in the room, guys. I mean, I'm speculating. the The only time I was invited to caucus with the Republican senators is when somebody brought in Bojangles' chicken. <laughs> I mean, that was their gesture of kindness to me. I mean, it, it's an insider group. It, it's a fraternity. I mean, I, I was the lieutenant governor. The Republicans caucused over here. The Democrats caucused over there. And they said grace over their issues. They had their disagreements internally. Some of that stayed internally. Some became external disagreements. But I didn't caucus, had no desire to caucus with the Republicans. Had no problem eating their chicken. And every now and then, the um, the Democrats would invite me to eat spaghetti. And I'll take them up on it. And um, but, but anyway, the, the energy inside the caucus was apparently never trustworthy in regards to McCarthy. Why do you know that? Well, you know that because of how many elections he had. Remember the repeated times he forced the House and he would make another deal with another holdout? So so at the end of the day, McCarthy had about 20 or so holdouts. He made deals at every turn with about 20 of those so so holdouts. Um, Really and truly, in the grand scheme of things, unprecedented promises. And he didn't keep the promises. And there would be some that would say, hey, I get it. I mean, he made that promise back when you asked for my support for speaker. But, but you know, th- th- you got a complicated job. You're hurting cats. It's hard. It's complicated. I, I kind of forgive you. I mean, I'm not going to vote to vacate. I mean, I'm, I'm aggravated with you because you told me something back when you wanted to be speaker and you've not kept your word, but I understand. I mean, I accept that as part of your having to deal with what you've had had to deal with. But, you know, 11 said, I'm just, you know, you said something you didn't do. You made me a promise. You didn't follow through on your promise, and I'm not I'm not violating the trust of people of South Carolina, the Charleston district, um, in, in, you know, entrusted in me. In other words, the voters have entrusted in me to do a job, I entrusted in you to do what you said you were going to do. You didn't. Therefore, 
I can't let – it's not that I, I don't trust you to do right by the caucus. I, I'm not going to continue to support somebody who just made a deal that didn't honor honor that deal. I mean, that, that, that really and truly is where it comes down to. Now, now once again, some – you got 20 holdouts to begin with. He made 20 concessions. Uh, he made, in my opinion, some unprecedented promises. Remember the Rules Committee? I mean, one of the concessions he made was a single member being allowed to make a motion to vacate. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason it happened since 19. It has not ever happened, the removal of a speaker, and we've not had a motion to vacate since 1910. Um, because people just kind of get into the, the, the mix of politics and they agree to disagree and they, they move on and move forward and, and advance. But, but I think, I mean, when you really think about it, and I wrote some things down this morning that I think probably happened to the caucus. I mean, I got to believe there was debate over border funding. McCarthy kind of gave into the Democrats. I mean, there was an increase nowhere near what the Republican caucus wanted, Ukrainian funding, and he didn't drive that. McConnell drove that. Uh, Mitch McConnell is losing grip of the Senate. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's now recorded. You ready? We got documented evidence that McCarthy has lost control of the McConnell. Republican. I mean, McConnell. No, McCarthy. I mean, he's been voted out. I mean, that, that's, a, that's the ultimate thumbs down. McConnell's still the minority leader in the Senate. But it, it, it appears to me, and I, I'm just speculating once again, I'm not in the in the Senate caucus. McConnell tried his best to get his Republicans in the Senate to, to vote down McCarthy's omnibus or CR bill that didn't include Ukrainian funding. I'm getting to the weeds here for a second, but I'm led, from what I'm reading between the lines, Schumer and McConnell had a deal. You know, we'll vote on a CR that includes a little bit of funding for the border but we need that Ukrainian. That's such an interesting dynamic in politics today. The Hawks are the Democrats, and the uh, the Doves, I guess, in historic terms, would be would be the Republicans. But it looks to me like I read an article yesterday, the, last night, in the Wall Street Journal, and it was talking about you know what happened to the House. But the House sent that CR over the Senate, and the Senate McConnell tried to talk the Senate to voting it down, but he didn't have the support of his caucus. He didn't have enough Republicans. There were too many Republicans saying no to Ukraine funding. And if you've seen the polling, Morning Consult had a poll Monday that shows a precipitous decline in the percentage of Americans who now support um, funding for Ukraine. But because it's, I think the, I mean, I, I would argue that I've done a decent job of this, you know, unlimited funding for endless wars. Um, Josh, do you want to support Ukrainian funding? I don't know. I don't know if I do or not. I mean, I, I don't, I need to better understand it. Josh, do you want to support unlimited funding for endless wars? No, I don't want to be, I don't want to be part of that. No, no. See, when the rumor came out or when I heard the rumor that McCarthy may have well, you sent cut, me a text. Well, he may have, no, when I heard a rumor that McCarthy may have cut a deal with Biden on the side for Ukrainian funding. They did. See, that's offensive to they, me. Well, I mean. But, but, from from his standpoint, so yeah, I'm glad he's gone if he's doing that kind of stuff. And, and where he got in trouble, here's where I think they all stubbed their toe. If they get that bill through the Senate with Ukrainian funding, the Democrats give him cover. But when McConnell's caucus rebelled and they couldn't get the Ukrainian funding in the Senate bill, I think Biden and the Democrats said, okay, I mean, we don't need you anymore. I mean, they, they, the parties use one another. But they're vessels to get to a place, um, and and that's that's where the deal making comes. Well, don't so, forget, it's the Democrats that voted McCarthy out. Sure, it's I mean, just that they but Republicans. That, and that's where I'm headed. Yeah. See, McCarthy always felt that the CR he sent to the Senate would be amended, 
and the amendment would be Ukrainian funding because there's more hawks in the Republican. The Republican Senate doesn't have a Freedom Caucus. I mean, they don't have these hell raisers, these back row boys that won't do anything Washington wants them to do. So I think McCarthy's, his existence as speaker was in the hands of McConnell, Schumer, and Biden. And when enough Republican senators, from what I'm gathering, uh, J.D. Vance had a big part in that. Uh, behind closed doors, Vance said very articulately, um, I'm just not going to support any more funding for Ukraine. And some of the Rand Paul, you got you to gotta know where, where Rand Paul probably would have been. In other words, McConnell couldn't, couldn't broker that deal. So once McCarthy sends the CR to the Senate, and it, it, it doesn't have any Ukrainian funding, and he believes that there's a way to get Ukrainian funding, and, and he kind of goes with the Democrats. And that's what McCarthy got in trouble with. I mean, he told his caucus, and this is fairly, I mean, th- this is being reported. I mean, this is not leaked. I mean, this, well, it is leaked, but it's being reported that he told his caucus, I'm cool with no Ukrainian funding. At the same time, he was negotiating with Biden, Schumer, uh, Pelosi, and Jeffries for Ukrainian funding. Right. And that's kind of the, I mean, that that's behind the scenes. That's the sausage bit. Josh, look at me like, what are you talking about? I don't know what are you talking about this caucus. And, and, you know, no, McCarthy's fate was in the hands of Biden, Schumer, and, and McConnell. And once they couldn't get Ukrainian funding through, the Democrats turned. Why do we need you anymore? You see where I'm headed? So once the Ukrainian funding was, was not passed in the Senate CR, that's when the Democrats said, well, I mean, we might as well vote him out. You know, he didn't, he didn't do what he told us he would do. And I don't know. I mean, I understand dealing with Democrats, and I understand Democrats. I mean, you got to do that. I mean, you really and truly do. Uh, you don't like it. I don't like it. Nobody listened to my voice much likes. But you can't build a firewall, one party between the other. I mean, there, there is a, an obligation you have to govern. And the Republicans don't get all they want. The Democrats don't get all they want. But McCarthy was operating in, in a dishonest fashion. I mean, he was right. not in good faith. He was telling his caucus, I'm with you on no Ukrainian funding. 100%. I'm with you. No more money for Ukraine. Hey, I don't know if these boys will go along with it, but if y'all get it out of the Senate, you see where I mean? He was mm-hmm. negotiating. And, and at the end of the day, when a speaker makes 20 or so deals with 20 or so holdouts, his life as speaker is always in balance. Pretty much, especially the single concession, uh, a single member's motion to vacate. I mean, that puts your job security in probably a good way to run the house, in all honesty. But I did check the drive through lines yesterday afternoon. I did check the baseball games, the college football practices. Everybody's cool. Doesn't seem to me that many are deeply concerned, as Washington seems to be, about the chaos ensuing because we've got a temporary speaker of the house. Take a break or an interim. I'm sorry, interim speaker of the house. Dude with a bow tie <laughs> getting PO'd. You see the first thing yeah, he did? Kind of interesting. He banged that gavel. And he kicked Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi out, of out, of her, out of her office. Out of her hideaway. <laughs> and she said, how dare you? I'm out in California. I'm not even there. I'm out mourning the loss of, of a good friend. <laughs> I don't care. Clean it out yeah. by tomorrow. We'll talk later. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Matt in Florence. Good morning, Matt. You are on. Hey, guys. I mean, here's here's my thing with this, and it's why the Republican Party makes me so furious. Like, they are so happy. They're willing to buck the system and fight each other nonstop. They never fight the damn Democrats. Like, okay, fine. Matt Gates. you know, he, he tough-talked a dead body. He got rid of uh, 
uh, shoot, I can't think of his name right now. But Kevin McCarthy. But, yeah, Kevin McCarthy. But it doesn't matter if you idiots aren't going to put together a bill. Like, I get that uh, any bill the House put through with the majority vote would probably get shot down by the Senate. But you do it uh, to show you the people that supported you that they put you into office, you know, like why they did it. And the Republican Party, honestly, I don't understand – what the point is anymore because all these guys it's like oh this guy gates he's such a billy badass you know he voted al mccarthy well what are you going to do now you know that, that's my my theory on the whole thing I, I don't understand it they're more than willing to talk crap to each other and fight each other but they don't do anything about what's going on on the other side and it's why i can i can barely i'm barely clinging on to supporting this party yet i'm almost done with it and just hell what's the point in voting Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is the number. I mean, I feel the sentiment, but you don't run the joint. I mean, you know, you got to accept, and I understand the frustration, Matt. I do. I, I am as aggravated about certain things as anybody gets, but it's still a binary choice. Kind of. I the, mean, the, this is the well, I mean, uniparty well, I mean, argument, the, right? But, but the uni, Well, I mean, the uniparty lost yesterday. Right. But the, and, I and I guess, I guess the, the, you know, the point I think we need to understand we are beginning to normalize things that have previously been considered very abnormal. The only levers the Republicans, and I think this is what Ralph kind of said yesterday. I don't want to put words in the congressman's mouth, but my interpretation of what Ralph said was the ultimate leverage is shutting down the government. Are you willing to risk the, the, the political backlash, the public backlash? You know, I've seen polls that lead me to believe the public aren't that concerned anymore about shutting down the government. This isn't 2008 and Obamacare any longer. This is 2023. Um, in 2008, a lot of people still trusted government. They had a, you know, a, kind of a um, an aspirational perspective of government. Government can do some good here. It's not all bad. Look at the polling today. What is the approval of Congress? What, what is the opinion of the American people relating to their to their government? I think it's not that risky to shut the government down. And I think that's where McCarthy probably got in trouble, um, not allowing that card to be played. I'm not for shutting the government down, but I'm not for funding Ukraine. I'm not for, you know, not investing in the border. I'm not for, you know, I mean, the three things the Republican caucus wanted to do, and the majority of this is driven by America first. You ready? They wanted no money for Ukraine. They were adamant, no money for Ukraine. We'll shut the government down if you send us a CR that includes funding for Ukraine. The, the, the Senate's not as adamant about that as the House is. That would be hard to get through the Senate. I think it's easier than I thought, and I just try to explain why. I don't think McConnell has his grips on the Senate like he previously did. But the guy stares off of the abyss for two days. And, and you know, senators see that. McConnell's not the guy he was. He's not a, a menacing, threatening fundraiser. That, that has control over the, you know, the $300 million in the Senate leadership fund. I mean, if you're in the Senate, McConnell's been there for a long time, and, and, he, and he's really astute at raising money and finding primary opponents for Dave Baker. Dave Baker's a senator in, uh, in Utah, and all of a sudden, you know, Blake Masters found out the hard way. Remember Masters? I mean, right. uh, you know, Trump had a big problem with that. Others had a big problem. Robert Cahaley talked a lot about, you know, pulling the funding from from Blake Masters. Blake Masters had a chance to win the Senate race in Arizona, but he was an America firster, and that didn't suit McConnell. So McConnell had a direct hand in Masters not competing as well as he could have. I'm not saying he would have won, 
But but had he had another 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, I mean, it would have been far more competitive in Arizona than it was. But McConnell, but McConnell's not in charge or not as, not as strongly in charge as he's previously been. But the Republicans wanted three things. I mean, they want, they want an appropriations process that includes spending bills. Let's get back to budgeting like the Constitution says we must, and we did until 2008. I mean, we've not done a budget in 15 years, 20 years-ish. They're about, I think, about 20 years we've not done. It's been CRs and omnibus bills. Um, the Republicans wanted to increase the budget for border security. I mean, that, nearly all Republicans agreed with that. But McCarthy made a deal with the Democrats. And then when it was time for the, the Democrats to bail him out and, and maintain his speakership, they turned on him. I mean, that, that's why you just, you, in Washington, the fatal mistake is trusting the other party. You just can't. You can't trust the other party. Everybody in Washington is self-preservationist to the most extreme degree you could imaginable. And when McCarthy became expendable, he lost his speakership. Why? Because Democrats joined 11 Republicans in ousting for the first time in American political history a Speaker of the House. And you have to know that they thought that was in their best political strategy. Of course. Interest. Watch the de- watch the Republicans scramble. Chaos. You know, people will forget about inflation for a day or so. Now they're not. But, but, but they, you know, political chaos in Washington is all-consuming, and they think Americans consume that at the rate that they do. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. Yeah, I look at it a little different. Uh, 11 Republicans joined 208 Democrats to throw him out. But that's neither here nor there. Every time we've had a shutdown, actually Republicans are gained seats. I remember back when Ted Cruz was doing the filibuster and red, green eggs and ham on the Senate floor. But... They they tend to forget that. Uh, Nancy May, she's a different animal. She said she voted against McCarthy because he didn't bring up any gun control laws or any women's rights laws or some garbage like that. Now, that's a, that's a good South Carolina value, gun rights laws. So the same people that voted down these regular order bills voted against jamming the Senate up because they had a deal between the Republican uh, conservatives that was going to cut 8% of the budget. I mean, it was a 30% cut, but they were leaving out the, the military and veterans benefits. And they had HR2, I think, attached to it, which is the strongest border control bill in the history of the United States. And they wouldn't vote it across. They voted it down with the aid of the Democrats. So whenever the, you know, you're up against a shutdown that nobody wants, they say, then you have to do a CR. Well, they had already made a deal, and Joe Biden signed it, and Congress signed it, that if they don't do record order on bills, the budget's automatically cut to 2%, I think. They fund 98%. So they already had 2% in hand if they don't pass regular order. And on this last bill that they voted down on either Friday afternoon or whenever, they were going to cut 8% across the board. And it was going to send it to the Senate. 
and the Republicans were going to jam up Mitch McConnell because he he wanted the Ukraine funding. That's 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 all he cares about. But I guess Matt Gates and them thought that wasn't a good deal. So I look at all these things and, and wonder how in the world are we ever going to govern? Now we got no speaker. So it took them what twenty times to get McCarthy. Who in his right mind would take that job under the circumstances? They keep saying Scalise. Scalise has got cancer. He was almost murdered by a crazy Democrat on a baseball field, and yet these people go with the Democrats and kick out the the biggest fundraiser actually for the Republican Party. Now I was looking at the figures. McCarthy raised probably close to half a billion dollars. Matt Gates gave no one a single penny. And he raised about eight, ten, $10 million, but he didn't help any of his fellow Republicans get uh, voted in. So there's there's a lot of stuff we don't know about. I just listened to a lot of different call-ins from Ted Cruz and all these other people, and, and there's so much that we don't know that's going on that that concerns me. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. I'll say something crazy and, and a bit unorthodox. I worry when the most prolific fundraisers are in the most powerful positions. There's a reason they're prolific fundraisers. It's not the cult of personality. They get stuff done for people that write big checks. Is that who you want running? Your party. I don't. I mean, I've always been concerned when someone says, he's the most prolific fundraiser we've ever had. That's the guy we need in charge. Well, I mean, if you want to represent the special special interest, that's exactly who you need in charge. You want somebody doing their job on behalf of the American people, forget prolific fundraiser. I'm just, that's always made me a bit like like McConnell. He's a prolific fundraiser. McCarthy's a prolific fundraiser. You better put these guys in charge of the party. Yeah, I mean, and the party's owned by who? The people who... Help make them prolific fundraisers. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jason and Marion, hi, you're on. Good morning, Ken and Dave. Guy, you know, with all the drama and everything going on Capitol Hill and in the House, they still really don't have a, you know, a budget. They go to CR, which to me isn't, you know, really a budget. And, you know, in the past, Ken, you've talked a lot about um, entitlements. And, you know, that's one of the things that some of the um, Republicans want to do, but they know it's like a political death if they talk about certain ones, and one of them is um, Social Security. And I kind of wanted to throw this by you to see what you thought. And, you know, if you think I'm totally off my mind, you can tell me I'm a big boy. But when it comes to um, retirement, instead of um, having it at 65, we up it to 70. And now everybody's already, oh, you're crazy. That, that will never work. But hear me out. If you decide to work from 65 until 70, you keep 100% of your money. That, so there's no tax on that. So if you and your wife make $100,000 a year, you know, that's 200000 total. In five years, you have a million dollars. Is that something you think that could get any traction, or is that just something? I'm I'm, I'm crazy. No, but thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. You got to put options on the table. 
I think the first thing you've got to do is accept the math doesn't work in these current models. And then Jason comes in the room and offers a proposal. It may not be where you end up. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in political negotiations. There are no crazy ideas. I mean, it's your idea. It's my idea. It's his idea. It's her idea. But, but the first thing you've got to accept that we can't sustain the degree of spending or the level of spending that is happening today to fund Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Those are the drivers. Those three line items are north of a trillion dollars. I mean, that's, you know, it, that that's just eats away. And the recurring expenses, they grow exponentially every year. We borrow money to plug the deficit. We fill in the gap with borrowed money. Um, the and, and we create a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger hole. There, there is no ironclad answer to what we need to do about Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Um, I said yesterday something a bit interesting for a conservative Republican. I would consider some sort of single-payer health care. What? I mean, that, that's, I mean, yeah. You did. You said it. I mean, I, but, but think about this, guys. Why do I say that? I mean, why does a conservative Republican say he'd consider single-payer health care? You know why I'm saying it? To begin the conversation. You know why I want to begin the conversation? Because I don't like a health care system bought and sold by the, the big pharma and big insurance companies. I mean, I'm not saying single payer is the answer, but I put that on the table as an alternate proposal to, to force somebody to respond. And, and then the next thing, well, I'm not for single payer. So are you for a health care system built by lobbyists from big pharma and the insurance companies? I mean, is that what you're for? And then you begin a debate and discussion. And that has to be bipartisan. I mean, Jeff and I had, I think, about the friendliest conversation he and I could have about, you know, safety nets and safety hammocks and, you know, a 30-year-old person getting injured at work and and where do they go to sustain themselves if they don't have, you know, means. I, I think those are all reasonable conversations to have. So when Jason offers up something that is a bit radical, I mean, it's a bit out of the mainstream, that may be a part of it. I mean, it may integrate itself into the final proposal. And when government works, that's the sort of conversations you have. Those are the sorts of, of outcomes you have. And I could go down the road of gerrymandering, and and we've created these supermajority districts, and I can't be for that because I'll get primaried. I don't have to worry about beating a Democrat and a general. The independent voter doesn't matter to me. My race is one of the primary. I mean, gerrymandering has created this political division that forces the two parties not to sit down and respectfully agree and disagree. So, so health care would be, I mean, Jason offered up, uh, you know, it is a radical idea. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's a very radical idea. But is it is it more radical or less radical than borrowing a trillion dollars a year to fill in the gap? Really? I mean, it, so, so in other words, you're not for single-payer health care. You're for the current model? No, I'm not for the current model. Okay, well, grab a chair. And let's address health care in some meaningful fashion. Let's make it more affordable and less profitable. And I'll say that on the record. I want health care to be more affordable and less profitable for the big insurance companies and big pharmaceutical companies. You, you, your job as a member of Congress, and this goes back to the prolific fundraisers. I mean, if, if Pfizer has you a, a, you know, a fundraiser and, uh, in Washington and raises you half a million dollars, what is the likelihood that you're not to consider some of the things they want incorporated into America's healthcare model? That's why I've always been nervous about prolific fundraisers and powerful leadership roles because they don't hardly ever have the genuine interest of the American public. They're paid for. But they've accepted the, the role as prolific fundraiser. But guess what those folks who give enormous amounts of money to, to the body politic expect? They expect things done. 
So, so if Pfizer gives, you know, I mean, I don't know what happened. I think Pfizer gave it's north of $10 million. I mean, that's their lobbying uh, last year. So, so if Pfizer gives $10 million, you think they're motivated by more affordable health care? I mean, some of the big insurance companies, health insurance companies, when they host fundraisers for Kevin McCarthy and, and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, do you think they're all sitting around a table figuring out how to make health care more affordable? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, they, they built the model. They built the health care system in America today. And, and I'm not saying we end up with single payer. And I, I'm not for single payer, but I'm for putting that on the table because I think single payer is more consumer friendly than the current model we have that I believe was drafted not by members of Congress, but lobbyists and chief of staffs, lobbyists who work for Pfizer, work for Big Pharma, work for Big Insurance, sat down with these prominent House members and senators and their chief of staff said, out of that came Obamacare. That's what I believe. Uh, you, you saw these executives from the insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, you know, get on CNBC and Bloomberg. This is going to devastate the health care. Oh, but that was a charade. Look at the stock prices. Look at the median stock prices of big insurance companies pre-Obamacare and post. Look at the, the stock prices of big pharma pre-Obamacare and post. But I mean, it was all charades. 843 0937, back in a few. 843-661-0937, couple of callers. We'll go there in two seconds. Just stick with me for one second. So, so in essence, this is kind of where I think we are. You ready? We had a speaker. He did some good things. He did some not so good things. But to become speaker, he made 20 concessions with holdouts. And he made a lot of unprecedented promises. And it's hard to keep that many promises in in hurting cats. It just is. Some forgive you for lying and being dishonest. Some don't. But but the reality is Kevin McCarthy should have never been elected speaker because if he's got to make 20 promises to get the votes, he's always in uncharted territory. So so I told a buddy of mine yesterday, he asked me how I would have handled it. I said, well, I would have never been speaker. I mean, if I'd had to make 20 deals with 20 different House members, that's just too much to care for. I mean, that's just, you can't tend to that many things while you're dealing with a job like being speaker. Speaker's a hard job. I mean, it's a, it's an important job, and I mean, you're, you're, on, you're an important person, and people, you know, they need you to do certain things. I mean, it kind of, if you're somebody full of yourself, and you like the limelight or the bright lights, you like being the center of attention, and you like to be the guy or lady that everybody has to, to go to to get things done, um, a little bit obsessed with power. Uh, you know, I don't care what you say, that the speakership is where the center of power in Congress is. So anybody who embraces, you know, that, I mean, that, I'm always skeptical when they say, well, it's not about me. Well, I mean, any speaker, it's about them. Newt Gingrich, it was about them. John Boehner, about them. Um, Nancy Pelosi, about her. Speakers aren't humble souls. I mean, they're very arrogant, self-centered individuals. Look at me. Don't you get, nobody can do that until they come see me. Um, McCarthy was ambitious. He got a burning desire to be speaker, and he was willing to put himself through that many contested votes, and he made a concession to get another vote, another concession to get another. He made all these, once again, unprecedented promises, and he didn't keep all of his promises. Now, there may, there may be very legitimate reasons. He didn't keep all of his promises. I don't know how in the hell you keep all those promises to all those people and maintain some sense of order and bipartisanship. I mean, I, I just don't. I don't know. I mean, I remember watching that, and I remember thinking to myself, he'll, he'll have trouble one day. 
Because one of the concessions he made was, you know, a single member can make a motion to vacate. Well, that's putting your life on the line. I mean, the first time you make somebody upset, and and I think Nancy Mace yesterday, Joe was talking about gun um, gun laws and whatnot. Mace said yesterday on multiple media outlets, I mean, I want a speaker that tells the truth. And if you make 20 deals with 20 people, it's hard to tell the truth every day. It just is. In, in fact, I would argue it's impossible to be honest to everybody when you're beholden to 20 people and the concessions you made to get the job that you said was not all about you. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. You know, getting back to your shutdown, Kim, not a single government employee went without a check at any level, city all the way to federal. You know, here's my next question, Ken. Well, it, you know the answer to it, but who is really going to be bad or angry if there is a shutdown? Do you think it will be voters like you and I, or do you think it will be the Denver Trumpers and the Democrats that will vote Republican anyway? Well, it's the, it's, it's the people that have fed at the trough of government. If you fed at the trough of government and government ain't putting any food out, I mean, your world changes a little bit. Mine doesn't change much at all. I mean, I would imagine if I had a trip planned somewhere and TSA shut down or I was going to the Grand Canyon and the park rangers weren't there, I mean, I would imagine it would impact me in that way. But but people who are nervous about the government shutdown are people who need the government's trough to be continually replenished with food. And, and they don't vote and they don't vote Republican. You know, they just they just don't. And then also at the end of every shutdown, every one of these employees that may not have gotten the check, they get one big check given to them. You notice every time they have a shutdown, it's not like they don't ever get their money. They get their money. They just might not get it for a few months. But here's another thing that I was just thinking about last night. Let's say that you went into a coma right after Obama, after Trump got elected president, and you woke up today. And they came to you and said, thank God you're awake, Ken. Well, what's going on? Well, listen, the Republican, the Republican National Committee needs you bad. We have got to figure out a way to make sure that Joe Biden doesn't get elected a second time. Well, the first thing you would say is, well, how the hell did he get elected the first time? And I said, well, show me some clips of him. Show me some clips of him. So you spent all the last night looking at all the Joe Biden stuff for the past couple of years. And how, and how the election went and all that. And then you come to them and say, guys, there's something really bad wrong. You mean, you mean to tell me that we're arguing on the Republican side who would be the best candidate to beat Joe Biden? I mean, I would get it if you were arguing who would be the best candidate to stop Bill Clinton's second term or to stop Barack Obama's second term. I get that. But really? If there's not something bad wrong with our system, forget the idiots that would vote for Biden if he were in a coma. But, I mean, there's something bad wrong with our system, or something bad wrong with our country, where we're sitting there debating who is going to be good enough. Who can be good enough to beat Joe Biden? Well, first thing it says, you ain't running against Joe Biden, brother. But think about that for a second. We're debating who can beat Joe the idiot Biden the lowest scumbag president we've ever had, and that's saying a lot. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, go, go in a coma, wake up, and see where we are today. And I go back to the, remember Monday when we discussed the, the Facebook post of a friend of mine who says, I mean, in essence, something just feels different 
I mean, it always feels, every morning feels different than the morning before. I mean, nobody wakes up exactly the same, and the world's never exactly, I mean, change is inevitable, it's a moving dynamic, I mean, the world is always repositioning itself in some way, shape, or form, but but some people believe, I don't know, man, something just feels different now. So something, well, I mean, I don't think it's one thing. I mean, I think there's a, a, a kind of a series of events that have happened and and things that have been said and done and actions that have been taken and done. And, I mean, I think it, it, there's kind of an awakening. I mean, that would be the word I use of the public. Now, I don't know what the response would be. I mean, I throw the word revolution around a lot. I don't know that we're the precipice of a revolution. I have no idea what that revolution looks like. Some would argue we're in the revolution now and we're, you know, you better uh, arm up and be ready and join a militia and all these other sorts of things. I'm sure of this. I mean, I'm sure that I am in the middle today. And I have a voice, and I don't take that lightly. I think I am a voice today in the, you know, a smaller secondary radio market, but but it's still a voice. And I think I am participating in a, a generational realignment. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that. And I was talking about, um, I mean, I was talking to a friend yesterday who is affiliated with the RNC, and, and he's frustrated. You know, we're going to pass over, we're going to hand off this power to the Democrats. We appear to be dysfunctional, it's chaotic, we can't govern. Uh, you know, we're, 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 you know, McCarthy was a decent enough speaker and yeah, he made a couple of deals that he couldn't keep and he was negotiate with the, but you know how that is. I mean, you know how politics is, but then he used an interesting word to me. And the interesting word to me was McCarthy tried to appease America first and America first is burning. Well, well I, let's just take that word appease, but because once again, this is a person formerly the RNC appease. And I'm like, Hey dude. Two-thirds of Republican primary voters identify as America first. Who's appeasing whom? I mean, it's almost, right. yeah, but we've had control of this joint for a long, long, long time. I mean, we're trying to appease you guys. We're trying to throw you a bone every now and then. I mean, we're, we're trying to not say as negative things about Trump as we really want to. We're, we're trying to, I mean, you know, give you at least some serious conversation about 12 appropriating bills and, you know, securing the border and some of these other but I'm thinking to myself, the arrogance. Arrogance. That's and it's, and it's, and it's an say. unknown arrogance. I mean, it's almost like he's not aware of this. He's as good and decent as you and I ever thought about being. But but he threw that word appease out. And I fired back. I mean, you know me. I fired back. I said, who the hell's appeasing <laughs> good, whom? Good. I mean, really? Appeasement? But but he's almost like saying, if you guys would only behave, you could get some of what you want done. We don't want some of it. <laughs> in other we words, want we're still in charge. It. Sure. That's exactly the insinuation he's making. I mean, you guys can sit at the table, but you're not sitting at the head of the table. And I said, look, two of three Republican voters today identify as America first. If anybody's appeasing anybody, you establishment elitists should ask for permission to be in the room when the decisions are made. And we got to invert that. I mean, there has to be a cut. And that's not going to happen overnight. I was thinking about something I've said over and over on this show. We expect too much of this movement. I mean, it's going to be a step forward and a step back. It's almost like building a football program. You beat Mississippi State, and you think you got some things figured out. And you lay an egg in Neyland, and you're back where you were. It's just, I mean, it's just Gamecock football groundhog day. Well, kind of, kind of. But, but it's going to be a process. And, I mean, I was thinking Bobby Bowden went to Florida State. They sucked at football. Bowden didn't win 11 games the day he got there. I mean, it took him a while. He built a program. He, he, he executed a plan. And a lot of us are so angry and frustrated, and it's been revealed to us now. 
how corrupt the establishment is, that we want it and we want it now. And you're just not going to get that. You're not turning a speedboat around. I mean, we're turning a <laughs> one of these barges, you know what I mean, one of these ships that are loaded slow boat to China. I mean, we're, we're not, this is going to take a, you know, a lot of effort and a long time. And there's going to be times you wonder whether we're making progress or not. We're in a generational, there's a reason it's called generational. We're in a generational realignment of one of the two major political parties in America. And yesterday's ouster of a speaker was symptomatic of that realignment, but we're not turning on a dime. We're not going to wake up one day and all the elite establishment figures say, okay, I get it. 66% of the voters want to go this way. This way is not anywhere near as lucrative. It's not, it's not, it's not what, what kind of built my career on. In other words, Joe was talking about prolific fundraisers. I mean, do we really believe that prolific fundraisers are prolific fundraisers because they articulate a genuine interest in the American public? No. Prolific fundraisers are people who have proven to give value to those who make contributions. And when Pfizer lobbies Republicans and Democrats, do you think Pfizer is for more affordable drugs or higher profitability? I mean, when insurance companies lobby the federal government, do you think they're for reducing your health care and car insurance and, and homeowners' rates? No, they're, they're for profitability. That, that's, and, and, and that's been the entrenched force in the GOP, and we're fighting that. And it's going to be generational in being successful in forcing that realignment. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Hi, you are on. Hey, good morning, guys. So um, I've got an idea that I'm a fan of for uh, getting a balanced budget. But first, got to say I was amazed yesterday, Ken, to hear uh, you and Jeff on the same page. <laughs> uh, that was pretty uh, – That was. I thought that was a one-time thing. So uh, anyway, so the idea is for a balanced budget is that you tie – Congress and Senate pay and livelihood to having a balanced budget. So if they go over 3% or whatever it would be for the year, they sacrifice their their pay. Or two years in a row, they're out. Um, I just don't – they don't have the courage to do something like that, something drastic like that. Thank you, sir. Well, well, appreciate that. Performance pay. Imagine that. I mean, you perform, you get paid. That would be great. Yeah. Um, Who was it? I think Buffett may have been the guy. Yeah, Yeah. Warren Buffett's the one that said, you want to get a balanced budget? Tell these guys they don't get paid. It'll get a balanced budget. Unless they come out with uh, with a balanced budget. And, and guys, my point is this. Whether we want to deal with Social Security, we talk about, you know, I don't want to be the the politician that explains to the American public that we lied and we got to break all these promises we made with the electorate, the voting public. Or, I mean, who receives Social Security benefit? The voting public. Who gets the benefit of Medi- Medicare and Medicaid? The voting public. But, but the truth is the math doesn't work. And we've tried to break that down the best way I know how. I think one of the interesting arguments we had earlier this week, might have been the end of, of last week, you know, the, the debt is not secured or collateralized. I mean, the full faith and credit of the United States of America. I mean, that's what, but, you know, China doesn't have the title to the Grand Canyon. Japan doesn't have the rights to yeah. our, our gold, oil, and gas exploration properties. Um, you know, what, what do you do? Do you walk away from some of that debt as part of the um, the proposal? I mean, I, I'll level with you. If I ran for Congress today, part of my platform would be we owe China $7 trillion. If I'm elected, I'm introducing a bill that says we owe them zero. 
They created $7 trillion worth of economic damage, and they knew it. We'll call it square. I mean, you, that, that, is, that, is that grandstanding? Is that showmanship to some degree? But I could honestly legitimize it. I mean, the Wuhan virus cost the American economy and taxpayer about $7 trillion in damage. We owe China about that much money. We'll call it square. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. All sitting members of Congress are ineligible for re-election. Yeah, yeah. Now, now you've got the incentives in the right place, right? So it, it's capable of being done. And they're trying to use the incentive now that we're going to blow your brains out, America, in terms of your debt worthiness over time. And, and that's being used as a threat. Uh, a more effective threat would be just to say, if you guys can't get it done, we'll get some other guys to get it done. Well, I mean, when you think it's about it, guys, and, and, I, and I complain about lobbyists, and I complain about big business, and I complain about, you know, uh, corporate America, and I complain about all these special interests, but in all honesty, none of those folks vote on budgets. They don't vote on CRs. I mean, Congress is who spends government taxpayer dollars. I mean, I, I am deeply concerned about how much we've allowed lobbyists to affect or impact and special interest and some of these organizations that can call themselves one thing and they're masquerading as something else. But, but none of those people vote on budgets. None of those people are elected members of Congress. So, I mean, we can scream and yell about Pfizer and, and you know, uh, BlackRock and Vanguard. At the end of the day, Pfizer doesn't have a seat on Congress or a seat in Congress. Uh, BlackRock does not have, uh, you know, a seat in a, in a financial subcommittee. Those are members of Congress. And either they're going to do the right thing or not. And I think doing what they're doing at the expense of future generations is criminal. I mean, it really is. It, it's something we should be ashamed to have allowed to happen in America today. It's almost like, um, you know, th- there's a scapegoat. It's this lobbying and influence. And, and I, you know, I, I used to believe this, and, and I get in trouble with some of my friends who I know uh, in that business. Um, the right to petition government does not mean bribery. I mean, it just does not. And I think Revs argued this point, you know, very articulately, that, you know, when your interests line up with the interests of the American people, in, in other words, let's say Pfizer needs a tax write-off. I'm picking on Pfizer today. Let's say Pfizer needs... Um, a law changed so their research can be tax deductible. And they're genuinely trying to pursue a cure for cancer. I mean, you know, can you cure cancer? I mean, I don't know that they can, but I'd bet on Pfizer before I would me, right? Right. So, so, so that's, that's good for the all. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's good for everybody. Um, Pfizer goes to Washington. They sit down with a uh, member of Congress. They explain this cut-through technology they've developed in some of their, some of their laboratories, and they believe they're the, kind of the cusp of cancer research, and the government says, what can we do to help? I mean, obviously, anything, you know, heading toward a cure for cancer is good for all Americans. People around the world will benefit if we could get there. And they say, here's what we need. Um, We need this sort of equipment and treatment and facility to be tax-exempt or tax-deductible, whatever, whatever you come up with. I I think as a member of Congress, you have an obligation to hear them out. But when they come and say, hey, you know, we need our profitability. We, we, we don't need to declare this as profit. It really is profit. We don't need to declare profit. We, uh, we made the money in America, but we declared the profit in Belize. And, you know, Belize. I mean, I, I just think that's when you go, I don't know, man. I mean, something about that just doesn't. I mean, I don't know that that's in the interest of the American people. Now, there's always going to be vagueness. There's going to be always ambiguity. It's never going to be as clear-cut as we'd like it 
to be. It's never going to be cut and dry. Not yeah, no. Uh, it's going to be yeah, no, and maybe. Yeah, no, maybe. Let me understand it better. We can't do that, but can we? Can we do this? So I'm not saying that everything is bad about Pfizer, BlackRock, or Vanguard. I'm picking on them because they're kind of front center in America. I'm not certainly saying everything's bad about Walmart. We pick on them occasionally because how dominant they are in the marketplace. Amazon spends a bunch of money lobbying, and you know we we know. I mean, go back to the days of we told the story last week about about John D. Rockefeller figuring out a way to get the government to call you know, oil fossil fuel when it's not really a fossil fuel, but he needed to he needed to be perceived as scarce. So so, so I'm not saying that that lobbying's not just. If Pfizer is at the cutting edge of cancer tech cancer curing technology, the government and and you know Congress has a responsibility to try and better understand their situation, their concern, their plight, their plea, their their request, so to speak. But but it's to the point now that I mean you can't allow big pharma and big health care and and big insurance. I mean it's really pharma and insurance who wrote the Obamacare legislation. You you can't allow that to happen. I mean you just can't. And, and the only reason Jeff and I, because Rev kind of challenged me, so so you and Jeff kind of agree that single payer may be the best way forward. I'm Jeff's probably arguing unequivocally. I don't have words in his mouth, but yeah, single payer is the best. I'm arguing that single payer can't be any worse than what we've got today. I mean, I don't know what quality of health care and, and percentage of a good outcomes and bad outcomes. And yeah, I, I don't, I mean, somebody that knows much more about that than I do, but I do know this. I, I, I well, I mean, I don't know this. That's unfair. I suspect strongly that the Obamacare legislation was not the creation of Congress. I mean, I've watched sausage get made. It's normally made by a chief of staff, a, a well-informed staffer, and a lobbyist. They sit in a room somewhere, and they, they, they like, let's do this. Well, I mean, I don't think we can do that. How about this? That's not the job of Congress. The job of Congress, the job of a member of Congress is to not farm out something as important as health care. I mean, he's got to understand it. He's got to invest some time and energy in it. And, um, but, but I know for a, I mean, I, I'm almost as sure as I'm sitting behind this microphone that the majority of Obamacare was created in some of these conference rooms on, on Capitol Hill. And, I, and I, 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 three members, you got three lobbyists from Big Pharma. You got two lobbyists from Big Insurance. You've got a chief of staff and a couple of staffers. I mean, I'm talking about senior staffers, good staffers, not kids, not interns, you know, with um, with visions of ambition in their eyes. I'm talking about guys who have been around the block, ladies who know how that city works. Um, but, but do you believe when, when the chief of staff, to me, there's got to be a yin and yang there. I mean, you need the member of Congress to be in the room. And the member of Congress says, look, I don't work for Pfizer. I don't work for Aetna. I don't work for Blue Cross Blue Shield. I work for the American people. And then what you're telling me is going to make health care more expensive. And I'm not signing up onto something that makes health care more expensive unless it's a lot better product. But we don't have that in Washington. And I've always said, as, as I don't want to use the word corrupt, as, as influenced as it is, as influenced as you think it is, multiply that by 100. I mean, that's how much mm. more influence money has well, the lobbyists over the are sitting in the made. room. Well, I mean, yeah, the lobbyists are drafting the legislation, Rev. I know. And that's... I'm, I'm telling you, I know for a fact that the majority of Obamacare was drafted in some of the conference rooms of some of the senior men, members. And, and these lobbyists know who to go to. They don't go to Matt Gates. 
I mean, with all due respect, I mean, they don't go to Matt Gates. They go to these these guys who move the meter, the Kevin McCarthy's of the world. Uh, Joe said prominent fundraiser. Why is McCarthy a prominent fundraiser? Because he knows how to get things done. Is he getting things done for the American people? Who's worried about that? I mean, he's getting things done for people to write big checks. And that's really where we are in the Republican Party today. Um, Drew McKissick doesn't buy what I sell. I mean, I believe that we have an asymmetrical relationship between the GOP power structure and the voting base. I mean, I don't think it's re- misaligned. I don't think it's a little bit out of kilter. I don't think it's, um, what, what do we say in the country? I don't think it's, um, it's, uh, uh, what am I doing? Uh, <laughs> you have to, I can't tell you what well, you're I mean, saying. No, no, I mean, I'm trying to think of, there's a word there. Anyway, um, eight four three six six one zero nine. I can't think of the word that, uh, caddy whopper. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying it's, it's that, but it's, uh, I mean, I think there's a, an asymmetry to it. I mean, I, I think it's asymmetrical. I think you've got over here the voting base and over here you've got the GOP power structure and they just, they don't understand one another. They don't relate to one another. They have nothing in common and you're not going to put that back in, in some sense of arrangement or order until the power structure accepts that this realignment includes people who just absolutely have no faith or trust in the way government conducts itself. No matter how the power structure tries to appease some of the Voters, well, right? I mean, yeah, that, to use that, your earlier that word, example. It, it, that word aggravated me yesterday. Yeah, it yeah. aggravates me. Well, I mean, McCarthy tried to appease. I mean, what else do you want the guy to do? He tried to appease the America Firsters. Well, I mean, the America Firsters should be trying to appease. I mean, the America Firsters are in charge of the party. They're not in charge of Washington, but they're in charge of the general population of the Republican Party. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Ken. I, I, it amazes me, but uh, you're absolutely right about that. A couple of senior honcho staffers and uh, and, and a nerd are are negotiating with what uh, the big uh, the big uh, med companies want. That's exactly how it happened. And uh, I I would uh, <laughs> say you you make a lot of money on that bet because that's that's the way it works. But, Full uh, disclosure, I've been in that room a time or two. I mean, it, mm-hmm. in my political life, I have sat in a room on, on not not many times because I normally felt icky when I left there. But but I have been a part of three or four conversations in my political life that had big impacts on the people of South Carolina. And and I remember leaving there going like, guys, this ain't this isn't the way this thing should be done. I mean, this is not yeah. in the best interest of the people. Continue, Mike. I'm sorry. With that no, that that's absolutely right. I'd I'd say uh, amen to that. But uh, these things, these these things, we're in a dangerous situation right now. Uh, the ship is really on the rocks, and I think we've got a few tears in the hull, and the rat lines are going overboard. And I don't know if the rats going to learn how to swim or not. I, I hope they figure out that they're on the same ship with everybody else. But we have a problem where uh, you say uh, we we have this leadership. They they're entitled almost like royalty, you know, and they're above it all. It's like King George didn't feel obliged to speak English if he didn't. Uh, he he would just as soon speak his native tongue of German, and uh, it, it was uh, sprechen Sie Deutsch with him or nothing. And that uh, th- that kind of entitlement, I don't know how you overthrow that uh, easily. It's uh, it could get uh, really ugly to, if you try to take their entitlements away from royalty, because they they were born to that, you know. 
Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Um, yeah, I don't know with this Kevin McCarthy thing, but I think I, I, I'm going to try to articulate it. I think we're all kind of coming at the same thing. For a long time, the Republican establishment said, what's good for us is good for you. And because they were very wealthy and, and, and very established and, and had all of these levers of power in, in the middle and lower class, said, well, we want to be like you. You know, we want to be wealthy. We want to have a, a, a good life, and we want to make good money, and we don't want to be stuck in the lower and middle class forever. And they said, well, if you'll just put us in charge, we'll make sure that those lines of opportunity are open to you. And we said, that sounds great. And we said, well, we want to be like them. And we voted for them, and after a generation or two, we realized, you know what, we're really not becoming like them, but, boy, they sure are getting a lot richer. And then they realized, and for a while I think what was good for them was good for us because the, the manufacturing base was in America, the money was made in America, and the jobs stayed in America. And then these guys realized, you know what, we can get mega rich if we just globalize. And that's when they lost us because then what was good for them was not good for us. But they kept on the same line and said, well, if you'll just do what's good for us, it'll be good for you. And slowly but surely, our standard of living started to decline. And now what we're trying to tell them is what's good for us is good for you. And they don't want to hear it. And that's why they're having all these power struggles is because there's a new group of people that have come in that have, that have realized it. You know what? What's good for us is what's good for the American people, not the other way around. And they're up there fighting about it. And I don't mind this fight. And, and the news is going to come on today, chaos and turmoil in this Congress. There's no chaos in Congress today because they're not in session. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me at all that they're fighting it out. And I don't feel like this weakens the Republican Party. And I do think that you keep using the word realignment. There is a realignment going on. They're going to have to realize that what's good for us is good for them, or they can just go play with their globalist buddies and they can get out of politics. But Larry, I think, but, but, I, but I think you would agree with me. You're not going to teach old dogs new tricks. It's going to take no, some new dogs. That's exactly right. I mean, it, 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 there's no chance. And, and I've had some insiders tell me, well, I mean, they did this and they did that. I said, look, they are who they are. And to your point, that is, I mean, that's been a longstanding relationship they've had with, with, with lobbyists and consultants and BlackRock and Vanguard and Pfizer, and they've gotten enormously successful and prosperous by those relationships. You're not going to convince those people to change. Nope. I mean, you're just not. It's going to take a new set of dogs, so to speak, to go to Washington and, and just kind of reconsider where do I uh, – let me ask you this, Larry. I'd be interested in your opinion. Any other caller? So are people willing to go to Washington – and proportionally benefit as a member of Congress. In other words, you pass policy that is not as globalist, it's not as interventionist, but it's not as rewarding. And you still got a knock on the door and somebody tries to convince you to, you know, this is the best thing to do. It's going to take a lot of resolve, Larry, for somebody to say, well, I mean, I don't think that's the best thing to do. I understand that there may be a board seat on the other side and there may be a lucrative consulting or lobbying career on the other side. We've got to find people who can say no to that. 
And that's going to be a hard task. I mean, that's that's a tall order. Yes, you're looking for a lot of self-made people because it does cost money to be involved up there. But my thing is, is this. I, for the first time, we're getting our way. And, and you want to talk about history. Yesterday, 213 Democrats voted on the side of the eight most conservative Republicans in Congress. And I don't think they're getting enough credit for that. They're, they're saying, oh, no, eight Republicans voted with the Democrats. No, 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 no. Quite the contrary. This was a big deal. That vote was a big deal. Um, I know why the Democrats voted the way they did. It wasn't because they like Republicans. But eight Republicans turned Congress on its head yesterday, and I think it was a good thing. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, it's unprecedented. I mean, eight Republicans and all the Democrats vacated a speakership. It's never happened in American history. And and I said early this morning, I, I felt a little <sighs> more responsible than I normally do the day after Trump got indicted. Because you could honestly say this has never happened. I mean, this is uncharted territory. There are a lot of crazy things that have happened in American politics over the years. Crazy things. But, but very few things are unprecedented. A president getting indicted is unprecedented. A speaker getting removed, a vacation, excuse me, a motion to vacate, and, and via, I mean, the speaker being removed via the, mo- uh, the, vo- uh, the motion to vacate has never happened in American history. Um, and this is a part of this, this realignment. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be, it's going to be uncertain. I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of times you say, well, was that the right thing to do? I'll say this. I mean, I, you know, I don't trust Matt Gates as far as I can throw him. But I'm for what they did yesterday. Because I believe the only way to get to a better place is to endure some chaos and some uncertainty and some unprecedented behavior. But when you look at how ambitious McCarthy was, I'm not saying I'm a better politician than McCarthy. I mean, I would never say that. It's pretty obvious I'm not. But if I had to make 20 deals with 20 separate people to become speaker, I never become speaker. I just think you're asking for trouble. I mean, it, it's just it, it's it's asking too much for the complexity of that position. You're not going to be honest with those twenty people every time. And Nancy May said yesterday, you know, the reason I made I voted for the motion to vacate is he's just not been honest with us. Well, he put himself in a position of not being able to be honest with, with all those deals he made, all those concessions, all those unprecedented promises he made. And I mean, I think the straw that broke the camel's back from what I'm hearing, I was, again, I'm not in those, in those caucus meetings, but there, there's a declining support in the American public for support of Ukraine. And I think the reason there's a declining support for, for spending in Ukraine is the Rand Pauls of the world have convinced the American people, this is unlimited spending for, for an endless war. I, I don't know if it is or not, but that narrative has taken hold. Uh, Reb. Would you be would be you be supportive of additional spending in Ukraine? I don't know how to think about it. Rev, would you be in support of you know endless or excuse me uh, unlimited spending for endless wars? And no, I'm not no. for that, not at all. I mean, right. and and that's the way it's been couched and categorized. And and you know whomever came up with that, it's working. I mean, because I'm looking at the polls. Fewer Americans today support support of Ukraine than you know did a year ago, did a month ago, did six six weeks ago. Well, I think reasonably, people, I mean myself included. You know, okay, let's talk about what we're spending the money on. What's the end goal? What are we trying to do here? Explain it in a way that makes sense and understand. But let's also 
make sure that the money is accountable, the line item spending, everything and else. nobody can give you an answer to that. Yeah, they won't nobody can give it. you an answer to that. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. You know, one of the fun parts of talk radio is when interesting people decide to seek office. I didn't say good politicians. <laughs> I didn't say smart. I didn't say dumb. Interesting. Interesting. Interesting people run for office. And since the day RFK Jr. showed up, I've been interested in what he has to say. He's, he's kind of a, um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a mixed bag for me. I mean, he says some, some things he says. I go like, yeah. And then other things I'm like, what? You know, but, but he is, I find him to be very curious and interesting as a political figure. And the mystique of the Kennedy name is kind of an added feature to that. Um, he is going to announce, we think, that, um, that he's going to run as an independent in his current Democratic bid uh, for president. How would that impact the race? I mean, I've seen a lot of opinion and some data about that. But Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you, sir? I am well. You know, it's been a uh, – why not throw this on? It's already been a uh, tumultuous uh, few few days here in D.C., so why not uh, add another wild card into our politics? Yeah, and, and I think you would agree. I mean, Kennedy is a unique – I mean, obviously a, a story yeah. name and brand in American politics, but he takes on these very odd positions – that, that most politicos would consider to be inconsistent, I find it to be very interesting, a bit refreshing. I'll level with you. He's interesting. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I, I think there – now, if you run as an independent, there are some re- legitimate challenges with ballot access. He, he's going to be well-funded because he's got you know, his own money, um, his family money. He's married to a successful actress. But um, you know, the ballot access issue is one that he's going to have to overcome first and foremost, right? How many states is he actually going to be a candidate um, in? And then there's like the other wild card about, you know, there's been all this talk about, well, does he hurt or help Biden? Does he hurt or help Trump? I think in a regular kind of election year, third party candidates, independent candidates don't have a huge influence. There are certainly exceptions to that. And I think this could be a year or next year could be a year where there's one of those exceptions. Why? Because if it is Biden versus Trump, the rematch, we've seen so many polls that show that a majority, a large majority of Americans don't like that, don't really feel real enthusiastic about either choice, uh, would like to have somebody else to vote for. So, you know, you have somebody like uh, like uh, Robert Kennedy, Jr., um, he seems, at least right now, to really have appealed to, um, you know, almost the Trump wing of the Republican Party with kind of some of the things that he said, uh, certainly the media appearances that he's done. That obviously isn't a lane because I don't think people are going to, you know, if, if you are a Trump supporter, I don't think you're going to give that vote up and, and vote for for, um, you know, a third party. I think what's going to be interesting is does he have an appeal that brings in people who otherwise would not vote. Does he bring in an appeal to people who would sit this out because they don't like their choices? Um, and if that's the case, um, I think it's hard to predict uh, who that sort of pulls votes from or, or you know, helps in, in some way. Um, and that's the, the interesting component, just given that, you know, you are going to have likely, if it is Trump versus Biden, kind of two candidates who at this point aren't real popular um, and aren't um, kind of, you know, driving – um, you know, independence in a, in, in sort of one direction. Jared, is he, do we understand why he's running? I mean, that's a weird question. That's more of a, no, um, I think it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, listen, I think that he is somebody who is, um, 
you know, does maybe feels that the, the Democratic Party has abandoned him. Um, I know that he certainly feels um, sidelined because he can't get into the debates. Um, I think that sometimes, you know, you have people who, you know, you've worked in, in kind of these causes and activism, and this is sort of a natural next step, and there's not really a natural place for him to do this. Um, you know, we've seen other Kennedys run for, for Congress. I think this is one of the first times since the 50s we haven't had a Kennedy in Congress, actually. Um, and, you know, it, I guess it's it's sort of in the, the genes, so to speak. But it's a good question, It's kind of what's he trying to accomplish here? Initially, it was to challenge Biden in the Democratic primary. So now it appears to, to maybe kind of be the disruptor and see what kind of lane exists. I'd be interested to see kind of if his campaign and, or if he – sort of lays out what that strategy looks like, what their roadmap in their view looks like. Is it to bring in people who otherwise wouldn't vote? Is it to provide a legitimate alternative for voters um, who maybe have made up their minds, but, you know, are, are open to changing their mind? Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know how many anti-vaxxer climate extremists there are out there, but that seems to be kind of his, kind of his lane. And, uh, and, and I, just, I just find it to be interesting, you know, but, but I want to go back to something you said, because I want to get your take on this. He will never win an electoral vote. But if he gets 1% of the vote in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, yeah, Arizona, Georgia, I mean, yeah, that's, Absolutely. that's enough to swing the yeah. election one way or the other. Well, I mean, you know, and that was the criticism of, of even like a Ralph Nader type uh, back in 2000. Um, wasn't a big factor, but got enough votes in Florida that, you know, Al Gore believes it was enough to, to move the election one way. Certainly Jill Stein got a lot of criticism in 2016 for, you know, the small number of votes she took that believed to be a detriment to Hillary Clinton. Um, so you've seen that by Ross Perot, by the way, is probably the most successful um, independent third party candidate we've ever had. What did he get? About 20 percent of the vote in 92. Yep, And no electoral uh, college vote. But he did. Affect, if, he doesn't I mean, run, if he doesn't run, how do you think it looks for George H.W. Bush? Yeah, there, there's never a president Bill Clinton. Maybe there is, but again, it, it's unpredictable. Sure. It's a wild card, and it is another kind of um, data point that is hard to project forward because you don't know, again, is he pulling votes away or is he attracting people to vote who otherwise would not vote? Well explained. Jared, thank you for your time, sir. Sure thing. It's, it's just an interesting situation uh, that we find ourselves in. I mean, if you're a anti-vaxxer climate extremist, <laughs> He's your guy. That's pretty rare. Uh, plus, he doesn't believe Sirhan Sirhan killed his father. Um, tune into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've got friends of mine who said, "Look, man, I'll give you the uh, the Lee Harvey Oswald thing." I mean, I, you know, bolt action rifle, moving vehicle, perfect shot once, twice, three times. Anyway, yeah, we could debate that. Um, there are fewer Americans today that believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone than ever. But RFK Jr. does not believe that Sirhan Sirhan killed his father. And he walks through some of the uh, findings in the autopsy that lead him to believe. Um, and he's once again now he's a he's a different cat. I mean he's a real different cat. He has the mystique of the Kennedy name. He has this uh, th- this conspiracy theory attitude that is a bit. I mean people are gravitating toward that. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I believe the only conspiracy today is to believe there's no conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's kind of the conspiracy theory of all conspiracy theories to believe there is no um, conspiracy. I want to take a um, talk earlier about presiding over the state Senate. I don't know how many times I mashed the red button and said, for what purpose does the senator from Kershaw rise? Senator from 
uh, from Aiken Rise, a senator from Moree Rise, a senator from Charleston Rise. And at times, it was a moment of personal privilege. I want to take a moment of personal privilege, and I don't want to make a lot of this because it's very serious, and I didn't do it yesterday intentionally. Yesterday was the anniversary of the tragic and horrific events of, of um, the Fred Hopkins, the death of Sergeant Terrence Carraway and Investigator Farrah Turner. And out of respect to their memory, their lives lived, um, their dedication and dying in the line of duty, I just didn't want to go there yesterday because that would have distracted from um, you know, uh, the, 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 the anniversary of two of our public servants, true public servants being killed in the line of duty. But, but I do want today to, to, to say this, and, and, and I, I hope this sounds like I am honoring or commemorating their lives and their very tragic and unfortunate deaths. You've got a guy that we know killed those two people and his ass has still not been on trial. And the murders happened in 2018. And that's disgusting and inexcusable. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who's responsible for that. And we can talk about the complications of law. We can talk about the, um, the complexities of our judicial system. But we know that Fred Hopkins killed Terrence Carraway and Fair Turner in 2018. And there's not been a trial nor a conviction. And everybody should be ashamed to have allowed that to happen. Why is he still breathing? I have no idea. I mean, it's not he just breathing. It's not even on. I mean, he's, he's, I know. he's, he's held, it's but he's ridiculous. not. We've not had a trial. We've not had a conviction. And that's so disrespectful to law enforcement. I mean, that's no so question disrespectful to, to Sergeant Terrence Carroll. And I understand. Well, I mean, you don't understand. Ken, a capital murder and, you know, and a, a death sentence case. And all. I mean, okay, make excuses, but it's 2018. It's the, it's the five-year anniversary of two law enforcement officers being killed in the line of duty, and the guy that did it has not been convicted, not not even tried for, for this trial. And that's just inexcusable. Something's wrong here. And I don't know who to blame. I'm not the guy that says, well, you didn't do your job, or you didn't do your job, or you were derelict in your duty, or you neglected your responsibility. But damn it, somebody, somebody is responsible for this murder that happened in 2018, and there not be... A pursuit of justice. And I find it inexcusable and disgusting that Fred Hopkins is sitting somewhere never having been convicted of two killing two people who were serving in the line of duty. And it's here. I mean, it's in our backyard. It's not in some land far, far away. There are people listening to my voice that knew Terrence and Farah. And they've got to be upset and offended that our legal system has let them down in the manner and fashion it has. I don't know who to blame. If I did, I would. But somebody is incompetent or crooked, one or the other, to not have pursued justice in the fashion that these families and law enforcement in general deserves. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843 I apologize for getting us out of sorts there. Josh looked at me like, I don't even think he normally does me know something. No, we're talking about what is going on here. Very but, understandable. But it's just, I mean, it, it's. feel the same way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is what it is. Um, And, and I'm going to be gut level honest. I know whose fault it is, but I just don't want to be personal on the airways. I just don't. I mean, you know, but it's disgusting and inexcusable that we've allowed that to be the case for the last five years, period. I'll, I'll leave it there. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, we've had kind of, con of a consensus. Um, 
I don't know that people are celebrating Matt Gates. I think people are, at least my interpretation is people are kind of um, thankful that there seems to be a willingness to do something out of the norm. And that's probably step number one, Rev, when it comes to a realignment. I mean, that's my word. I, you, you folks can probably find a much better word than I, but I think we're in the throes of, of a political realignment. And when you, I mean, it, there, there's going to be a lot of controversy and confusion and chaos. I mean, it's not, that there's not a, um, but it's a little bit like, I remember in, in high school football, Thursdays, we didn't dress out. We wore shorts and, and T-shirts, and we ran through our plays. And I was as damn good a tight end and linebacker as you could ever see when nobody had pads on and trying to hit me. <laughs> I'm sure. You know what I mean? I'm um, shadow boxing. I've won every one of those boxing <laughs> matches I've had in my life. But all of a sudden, you know, Friday night, there's a guy on the other side trying just as hard as you are. And at times, he's better than you are. So, so there's no script to realignments. But there's no, hey, run to um, run to Barnes and Noble and get me that book on that generational realignment. <laughs> but there is no, um, there is no book there. It's 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 you kind of make it up as you go. And there's going to be periods of times, as I said, the Gamecocks beat Mississippi State, and Gamecock faithful said, okay, we're figuring this thing out. And then you go stink it up in Neyland. Um, they they may win at Florida in a couple of weeks, may lose the I don't know. I mean, it's just, but once again, building a football program is a work in progress. And it's hard. Generational realignments in politics are even harder and more complicated and more difficult. And I still go back to Steve Bannon and, and what he said. I mean, if you believe they, and they being the elite establishment, a concert with the organized, you know, I'm talking about the, the money forces, the prominent uh, fundraisers. Uh, well, there's a reason that prolific fundraisers rise in the ranks of political parties. They get things done. I mean, the guy on the back row that can't get anything done, why would you give him a lot of money? I mean, the Senate's different because there's such a watered-down vote. Well, there's not a watered-down. There's a prominent. There's only 100 members in the Senate, so one vote could move the meter um, far more in proportion than one in the House. Um, But McCarthy made a big deal. McCarthy... Uh, made 20 deals with 20 people because he wanted to be speaker. And I, I've often wondered this, and I don't know the Who wanted McCarthy to be speaker as bad as he did? I mean, there had to be some conversation at some point in time in McCarthy's office. Somebody's a member of the House. Somebody had to come in and say, either this, Kevin, it ain't working. I mean, you're cutting too many deals. You need to withdraw and just kind of accept that it's just not your time. But somebody didn't. Somebody came in his office and said, "Hey, we really need you to be speaker. Whatever you got to tell Nancy, tell her. Whatever you got to tell Matt, tell him. Whatever you got to tell Steve, tell him. I mean, whatever you got to tell these people to garner their support, make that deal because we need you um, to be speaker. And when you make that many deals with that many people, you're beholden to things that I think I think you've obligated yourself to things that aren't realistic." And I think the the smart and honorable thing would have been for McCarthy after two or three votes to say, it's just not my time. I mean, I'm proud of what I've done. I'm proud of the, the you know, and I think I've done a good job leading the House, but it's just not my my time. But for whatever reason, maybe him, maybe driven by some, uh, you know, other forces, he, he stayed in and he made another deal and he made another deal and he made another deal. And one of the deals he's made was to, you know, give one member, the authority to vacate or make a motion to vacate. And Matt Gates decided to do that. Now, I want to say this again. I want to be emphatic. You may trust Gates. I don't. 
I think Matt Gates is a grandstander, personally. I think Matt Gates is a brand. I think Matt Gates wants to be Donald Trump so bad he can't stand it. But you don't give him any credit for being a I mean, fighter? I, 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 I mean, yes, he, he but, moved the meter on something. Is it genuine and sincere? Does Matt Gates really have a burning desire to make America better? Or does Matt Gates want to be uh, an important person on television every every single night? I don't know what the answer to that is. But but I'm not paid to tell you what I know. I'm paid to tell you what I think. Um, I mean, I know that McCarthy's not the speaker any longer. I mean, we all know yeah, that. I can fact. report that. That's a fact. But some of these other speculative matters, I have to say, I believe these. I think this. I think Matt Gates is a grandstander. I think anything to bring attention to Matt Gates, he will do. And I think he saw this as a very important moment in his political life. He can be the guy that brings the speaker down. But he had to depend on Democrats. That doesn't bother me. I mean, it doesn't bother bother me at all how we got here. I mean, you don't believe other opportunities have arisen for someone to try and make a motion to vacate and depend on the other party? I mean, that doesn't, I mean, that's not unusual. For that to happen, you better I mean, believe that the Democrats thought it through and figured that was in their best well, political I mean, and, interest. And McCarthy's fatal mistake, I think, was going to the Senate and and trying to make a deal with McConnell, Schumer, and Biden on Ukraine funding. I really believe. I'm not in yeah. the caucus meeting. I have no idea who got mad about what. I don't know when he lost this person or that person or you know. I mean, I, I look. Ralph Norman and Russell Fry are frustrated with McCarthy, but they didn't vote to vacate you know, the, uh, the speaker. I, so, so I can't, I can't do anything but speculate, but it looks to me. And some of the reporting I've read is when McCarthy made a solemn vow pledge to his caucus that there will be no funding for Ukraine. And then he goes to Biden, Schumer and, and McConnell and says, well, I mean, I told him that, but I'm not sure that I meant it. Uh, maybe we can. And I think one of the losers this, in this is McConnell. I mean, I, you know, the Senate bill, the CRI to the Senate, the, the what I call the the, the stopgap funding measure, the short-term uh, financing for the government for the next 45 years, it doesn't include any Ukraine funding. By it not including Ukraine funding tells me that McConnell's lost some yank in the Senate. I mean, that's just, and, and once again, that's public opinion. Public opinion is driving, is driving that. But McConnell's not beholden to the base. McConnell's beholden to whom? Washington. He's a creature of Washington. His interest is Washington-oriented. McConnell is not interested in what's best for the people of Kentucky. I'm sorry, Kentuckians. He's just not. I mean, you folks that live in the Commonwealth, uh, you love your horse racing, you love your basketball, but but you know, Mitch McConnell is not your guy. <laughs> I mean, he is a he he's a creature of Washington, and when he has a choice to make, do I do what the people of Kentucky wish I would do, or do I do what the organized interest that I've become so respectful of or respected of? And he's, you know, he, he's one of their guys. I mean, they go to him when they need some heavy lifting done. And let's give McConnell credit. He's able to do some of that heavy lifting. I think he's got some serious health issues. And, and I think some of his leadership may see that. And excuse me, so, some of his um, caucus members may see that as a, um, a signal of weakness. You know, I don't have to be afraid of McConnell any longer because he's a shadow of his former self. Let's go to the phone. Verd Odom, Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning, Ken. I'm uh, just getting on. I'm headed down to Orangeburg to the state fair to uh, get some Trump stuff out. And uh, yeah, I've been listening to you. Yeah, I don't. I think the winner in this whole thing is uh, Hashim Jeffries with the Democrat side. He played those eight people like they were diagum drums. Uh, last week he made the statement that the Republicans need to work out their mess and stuff. And he was hoping 
that there would be enough of those Republicans would turn against McConnell. I mean, turn against uh, the Speaker that uh, they they were going to vote against uh, uh, the Speaker anyway. You know, it's just uh, they. I think they got played. You know, you got Nancy Mace that turned against President Trump the first chance you got. You got Ken Buck in that group. He's the poster child for the anti-Trumpers and and. Uh, the uh, Gates is just, uh, it reminds me a lot of the Joker from the Batman movies. Uh, he's, a, he's a guy you can't trust at all. And uh, But no, I don't think, I think the ones, I think all eight of those people hurt themselves because I think those, uh, they made a, uh, an ad for an opponent coming up in the spring. Uh, the only way to look at this thing is eight Republicans sided with the Democrats to remove something that hadn't been done, I think, since maybe the 1800s, or I'm not sure how long it's been since the speaker was removed, if ever. But uh, they side, uh, the thing they did, they sided with the Democrats, and I, that's not a good thing for Republicans to do. But we seem to be in that thing that when we get the House and the Senate and the President, we always want to go to the Democrats and say, what, what do y'all want us to do now? You know, so I think they played right along and right up that game that Hakeem Jeffries wanted them to do. See, Vern, I disagree with you. I think the majority of Republican voters aren't bothered at all by what they did. In fact, I think the eight or nine that sided with the Democrats are in better place than the ones who didn't. I think Russell has more explaining to do today than he would have had he not made a motion to vocate. I don't think, I mean, I can't speak for the whole universe of GOP primary voters, but but our audience by and large have said, you know, I mean, they don't have any problem with what, with what the, um, I guess the, the, the Republicans that sided with the, uh, with the Democrats. I, I didn't see that looking online at all the people that were criticizing those aid and saying they all need to be primaried and stuff. Uh, we all know that if the government had shut down, it would have hurt everybody. And, and this kind of situation we're in now with this inflation, uh, they had to keep the government open. Uh, that was, uh, there was no way you could shut it down. There'd been too many people in, in, in an already, uh, so if we, if we uh, don't, if we don't shut the government down, will the Republicans ever get serious about balancing the budget? Well, I mean, that's something for another day, you know, but right now we're living in. Well, I mean, no, that, that's for right now. I mean, we we, yeah. we, we we did a short gap spending measure, 45 days. I think we're 42 days away from another government shutdown or threat of a government shutdown. Do you trust the Republican leadership to honestly go back to balanced budgets and, and appropriations bills? I don't trust them to do it, but, you know, the people are demanding it. And I think this is a wake-up call for them. What happened yesterday? Well, I, mean, I, said, I think I, you're right. I, I, I agree with you. I think McConnell is the big loser, you know, yeah. in the whole in, in the whole situation. Yeah. But you know, we're we're. Uh, I just think right now, from what I hear traveling all over the state, uh, everybody is scared to death right now with this economy. You know, they can't buy groceries. A lady talked to me yesterday. She said, "Are you normally two hundred dollars? I could fill my car up." And Bert, I walked out of Walmart with three bags. I mean. This this economy situation is is much worse. When you get out here talking to the grassroots grassroots people, they're scared to death. No question. Of what's going on? And they should be because there's trouble brewing. I'll assure you with that. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate your call, my man. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. You want to participate in this feeble attempt at radio brilliance? Give us a call. We'll talk about vacating speakerships and all these other yeah. unprecedented Anything. Um, things that have happened in American politics. One of the ongoing sagas, I guess as politics meets business and the economy, is the UAW auto strike. I've not kept up with it very much this week. I'm not an auto worker. I'm not a negotiator. I'm not in a labor union. But I am an American who cares about you know the the auto industry and, and where it's headed from here. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, good morning. What is the latest? on the UAW strike. 
Morning, guys. So Detroit's big three automakers are now furloughing or laying off thousands of non-union employees because of this ongoing strike. Uh, that's uh, you know two days away from entering its fourth week. So Ford, GM, and Stellantis uh, laying off workers at plants and parts distributors, parts facilities across the country. Um, the automakers who've lost billions of dollars because of the strike say that more layoffs are likely. Of course, the UAW has criticized the automakers' move to lay off, uh, you know, to lay people off, saying that the big three are using the layoffs as a tactic. Uh, on the flip side, the UAW uh, this gives them an opportunity to unionize or at least to attempt to unionize more workers. Um, and, and, and so right now, about 25,000 union workers have, have been off the job uh, in, in, this, in this battle over a new contract and, and pay and, and job protections. Uh, though Ford was the latest last night to offer to, to, uh, to give the UAW its newest offer. Um, it's a pretty strong one. The, the, the automaker's seventh offer includes what it says is, is record pay and benefits. Uh, that would, you know, give workers a, a pay raise of more than 20%, along with cost of living allowances for inflation. Uh, all pay tiers would be eliminated. Average new hires will earn six figures by the fourth year. Uh, temporary employees would also uh, be included in profit sharing and, and full ratification bonuses. Uh, UAW has not responded yet. It's one of the arguments that GM has, has said that, you know, weeks ago when it offered its latest deal, uh, that the UAW had hadn't responded, so it was sitting on it, and and um, and you know, leading to some criticism from from GM over that. Um, it said that the strike has cost automakers billions of dollars in total economic losses in just the first two weeks. So, um, you know, if, if this thing continues, we're talking perhaps tens of, of billions of dollars by the end of it if if no deal is done uh, by Friday. I would expect that Sean Payne would be back up on the TV screen on social media streaming uh, the fact that more plants are going to be shuttered. Jeff, as Forrest Gump said, I'm not a smart man. I can ascribe to that. but but I, And I don't know what an auto worker should make. I don't know how much time <laughs> off they should have. But, but the majority of people find it curious that the UAW would ask for a 40-hour pay week but only work 32. Is that still one of the negotiating articles, or is that – has the UAW and Ford GM Stellantis agreed that's a no-go? Yeah, it's a no-go. Uh, look, the, the UAW is going high. It knows it's going to have to give some concessions. Uh, that is just one of uh, the things that it's going to have to concede on, I, I, in, in, unless yeah, ultimately uh, the, the big three agree to that. But the UAW was also originally asking for 46% pay raise. Um, and other job protections and, and benefits, and has come down to 40%. We're told by insiders that they're willing to come down to 30%. Uh, still a huge gap between what the UAW is demanding and, and what automakers say that uh, they can afford amid this this transition that's costing them billions of dollars to, to all EV. Uh, yeah, the, the, the auto industry has been pretty, pretty profitable uh, for GM and Stellantis. Uh, though Ford says uh, and others said that they're likely going to lose billions of dollars this year on on this transition to electric. Well explained, Jeff. Thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You too. I, I want to go back to, to to the Tiff Verd and I had. You know how much respect I have for Verd out on the on the trail. But Verd is grassroots. I mean, he just said going to put out signs for Trump. I mean, he's he's a true, true, true 
warrior of the Republican Party. We can disagree at times. I have a great respect for Verd's political acumen and opinion, but but I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy in the argument of, well, they joined, you know, they they joined in with the Democrats to oust the speaker. But I mean, in essence, McCarthy was trying to join in with the Democrats to get funding for Ukraine. Right. So, Don't so, forget. I mean, that, that's right. I mean, it's easy to say, well, I mean, you, you know, you and those Democrats. Well, I mean, the majority of Republicans don't support Ukrainian funding. They just don't. I, I, what percentage? I don't know. But they did not have enough. I mean, the, the, the Republicans have a slim majority in the House. They didn't have enough votes in the House to pass a CR or omnibus that included, CR in this case, short gap funding, that included uh, money for Ukraine. So they went to the Democrats. They knew the Democrats are the new, they're, they're the new interventionists in America today. Uh, forget Woodstock and anti-war. We're, we're all about bombing places and, and funding military and, you know, protecting borders that on our own. Um, a bit sarcasm there. But, but anyway, <laughs> I, I just think there's some hypocrisy in, you know, these Republicans joined in with the Democrats to oust a speaker. That's bad. But these Republicans joined in with the Democrats to advance spending for Ukraine. That's good. Uh, you can't, I mean, yeah, you can have it both ways as it's politics and it's not black and white, but there's a lot of uncertainty in some of these issues. And you'll find yourself uh, very often in conflicting positions and situations, but, but I got to point out the hypocrisy there. I mean, McCarthy got ousted, no doubt, largely by Democrats, but McCarthy was willing to go cut a deal with McConnell, Schumer and Biden to get funding for Ukraine with the support of whom? Mostly Democrats. Let's go to the phone. Jamie in Darlington. Good morning, Jam. Good morning, guys. I, my thoughts are all over the place on this thing, but I got to tell you, I, I I disagree with Verd, and I I normally agree with him, but and I know he's a Trump supporter, and I love that, but uh, you know this is what our country is based on. I mean, everybody that signed the Declaration um, to uh, withdraw from um, Britain. I mean, every one of those guys suffered a, a lifetime, if not they suffered death, uh, by signing that declaration. You've got to have some rebels out there to shake up, maybe throw the bat, the baby out with the bathwater to start over. Um, I just think Bird's wrong on this, and um, you know, I know I know why Fry and and um, uh, the other congressman uh, didn't vote to vacate. I understand that they kept he kept his promise with them. I understand that. I, you know, I'd be fine if they put uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in, in that position. And that's how radical I want to get on this thing. We can't continue the way we're going. And McCarthy was just going down the the regular path, the easy path for for the powerful. And there are more of us out there, Bird, than there are of you. And uh, I got to tell you, this this was this needed to happen. And it's it's got and I hope more of it happens um, because we're just not getting anywhere and we need and I honestly I think we need to get out of Ukraine I just think it's a bad deal and and uh, and sure it's a good deal for you know for other people but it it had to happen uh, we had to show America that we're damn serious about straightening this mess up. And and I'm I'm just glad it happened. I've got more thoughts, but they're all over the place. But anyway, that's what I had to say. Thank you, Jam. I've heard people say rip the Band-Aid off. I mean, that, that I think that's a good that's a good analysis. A good analysis. We rip the Band-Aid off. Is it good? 
did the scab stay on, come off? Is it infected? Not, I don't know. But, but there's no doubt yesterday was a part of the continuation of, you know, kind of sort of ripping the Band-Aid off. Take a break. Back in a few. We put our resident antagonist on hold for just a second. Jeff will be back with us in just a second. I hope he held on. Uh, but we got another, yes, we got another, not a regular caller, but somewhat of a regular caller into uh, Wake Up Carolina. And that is Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing good, Mr. Lieutenant Governor. How are you, sir? We are doing well. Waiting on that Braves Orioles World Series <laughs> yeah. um, sometime in yeah. the not too yeah. distant yeah. future. Yeah. Um, Kevin McCarthy's not worried about a Braves-Orioles World Series. He's got a lot more problems. He was Speaker of the House yesterday. He's not today. You're on Capitol Hill. You're in our nation's capital. What is the sentiment for what happened yesterday? There is no precedent. No, there is not. It's the first time it's ever happened that we've seen a Speaker of the House removed in this fashion. And uh, it's testy here. Um, Let's just put it this way. You know, you have Matt Gaetz, who was leading this effort. Yesterday, Republicans had a conference meeting, and I believe that's where Speaker McCarthy decided that he was not going to try to become Speaker again. And, you know, a lot of, you know, this hallway is very narrow, and you have a lot of reporters who are talking to members of Congress after they get out. Of course, Gates was commanding a lot of attention, and he didn't talk to the press for long, but he made some comment to one to one member of the press, or at least he was answering a question, and you have a lawmaker who walks by and says, oh, look at that, you blame somebody else for that one too, Gates. And you could just tell that just the testiness that's going on towards Gates over this uh, motion to vacate. So, Ron, where do we go from here? Who are the likely suspects to be Speaker yeah. of the House? Right. So some of the names we're hearing and some of the names we're looking for is obviously Steve Scalise. You know, he's the the, the leader of House Republicans as of right now. And, you know, he's, he's been floated around. You have a lot of members who have kind of uh, made hints that they want him to be speaker uh, through their different social media accounts. And, it's, and even Matt Gates has said he would vote for him. So I think he's probably one of the favorites right now. But then you also have a couple others who've been floated, like Kevin Hearn uh, from Oklahoma. You've got uh, Tom Cole and you have, I believe, uh, Jody Arrington of Texas is a name that, that they're flirting with, too. So yeah, there, there's a number of different names. Patrick McHenry, McHenry is currently the speaker pro attempt until a new speaker is elected is also one. So there's a number. You know, everybody's mad when some dude with a bow tie slams the gavel down as hard <laughs> as McHenry yeah. did yesterday. He ain't having it. I mean, he means business. No. Um, okay. No, let, the, the timeliness of this. I mean, when do, I mean, obviously we're herding cats and, and it's a complicated yeah. job. What, what, I mean, I'm not saying when do you expect a new speaker to be named, but how quickly do you think this process takes place? Right. So, so we do have a timeline right now. So we are expecting Republicans to meet while Congress is out of session, and we are expecting a likely speaker's race to happen on Tuesday. So this is not something that they want to sit around with. They want to make this decision quick because, you know, we're heading towards another government shutdown on November 17th. So they want to pick somebody pretty quickly, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen until probably Tuesday. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time. Go Braves, go Orioles. Yeah, yes, sir. Have a good one. Thank you. <laughs> good deal. Good deal. Is Jeff still there? Uh, I okay, think so let's go back to our resident antagonist. Jeff, are Jeff. you there with some more enlightening <laughs> comments? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, just uh, first off, would anybody you know want that job? Hell no. You know, he listed a bunch yeah. of people, and it sounds like guys that are lining up to get punched in the face every day. Well, I mean, but, but Jeff, I think you'll, you'll, you'll agree True. with me here. I mean, and, I, and I've been in politics, and I, I mean, I, I've, been, I've been forced to – put aside my personal views at times in the name of pragmatism and trying to be a part of better government. I mean, I understand that. But when McCarthy made so many deals with so many people, 
you just could see this coming eventually. Whether they would vacate or not, it was going to be a complicated speakership for McCarthy when he made all these deals with all these people. Yeah, absolutely. Like it was, this was, uh, the writing was on the wall when it took 15 votes to get there. Um, you know, that's just like, he had no chance to succeed, um, in, in that, uh, conference. Um, but I, I didn't catch Bert's comments, but it sounds like he's upset because he realizes this is kind of a, uh, almost a death nail for the traditional Republican party. That's interesting. Well, I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but that that's interesting. You hardly ever say anything interesting, but that's pretty interesting. (laughs) I mean, this is a, I mean, I call it ripping the bandaid off, but that may be a better way to say it. This is kind of the, you know, the, the traditional conservatives last stand and they lose in the name of doing something that has never been done before. Yeah. This, no, that's, Make no mistake, like, this is the baby in the bathwater just went out the window. You know, like, this is the start of what you guys were hoping would happen with this America First. And, and I've not thought now, of it in that way, but you're right. I mean, that, that's kind of an interesting angle that you're taking. Um, and I've not thought, I mean, I'm a little bit embarrassed that I hadn't thought of that way. I mean, you know, but, but that's, it's not necessarily yeah, ripping the band. Yeah, I mean, we wish for this. We wanted chaos. We wanted upheaval. We wanted an uprising. We wanted a political revolution. Well, here we are. Yeah, and so to that, um, do you think the plans thought through? Ah, probably not. Right, they're making it up as they go. And when you when you but how do you think going, through that? Yeah. I mean, in all honesty, how do you? I mean, where's the book? that says this is how you do a revolution and generational realignment. It, it's, it's tough. I don't know. Like, uh, again, we're, you're in uncharted territories. Not one of our, the, the, the Tea Party movement was tiny in comparison to what this is. But Bert, and, you know, you respect his opinion. There's a reason he's upset. And there's a reason he's fearful. And it's because, you're 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 looking at a group of individuals. If you were to look at the eight that voted with the Democrats or called this and voted with the Democrats, would you intellectually trust any of them? I can't answer that. I mean, I, I honestly can't. I don't know their body of work. I don't know what they've done or not done. I mean, the only one I'm familiar with is um is Mace. I mean, you know, having been a South Carolinian all of my life, and she represents a district here. And I knew I told I said this morning. I mean, she's an acquaintance of mine, but certainly. I'm not a friend, but I've not done the the necessary work to figure out whether this crowd can provide any of the intellectual underpinning that I think is necessary if you're going to execute a generational realignment. Right. And and she's like a weather vane. Like she's gonna point in the direction of the wind that blows in. But but she's a complicated she has I mean, Nancy is in a complicated position. That is a swing district. That, that is a finicky sure, sure district, I mean, that, that, and she's got to she play. She was willing to throw Trump off three years ago. Yeah, I, 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 here's what I believe about Nancy, and this isn't about Nancy, but I think I think Nancy has demonstrated an ability to be independent, and I think Charlestonians like that. I'm not a Charlestonian. I'm interpreting from afar. Um, the, the politicians from Charleston that I've dealt with in my life have always believed it was important to reflect at least a sense of independence. I'm not doing what Trump says every time. I'm not doing what the establishment says everything, uh, every time. I'm going to do my own thing and let the chips fall where they may. Seems to me Charleston rewards that more than any other district in this state. 
But but if you think that that district isn't uh, reflected all across the country, like there are there are districts like there was there was thirty Republicans that might have been in jeopardy, and in, in districts that or or congressional areas that Biden carried. How many do you think? now or in play. Well, see, and that's where you and I probably disagree. I don't think this is a fatal mistake. I mean, I, I really don't. I think there's an appetite in America. Here's the question we don't know the answer to. I'm debating, texting this morning with a guy from the Garden Sea about, you know, <laughs> what do you think and what do I think and what do you think? What do you think? What do, what, what do I think? I believe it's clear, and I think you'll agree with me, Jeff. We'll debate for a second. I think you would agree that the overwhelming majority of Republican primary voters identifies America firsters. I believe Donald Trump has a death grip. Well, then, then, then stop with Trump, man. You, you, you got to be no, fair no, with no, me. I try, I try to be fair with you. Talk about America's first. Okay, I'm, but but I'm, if if you take Trump out of the equation, if, if okay. Robert Cahaley called three thousand Republican primary voters, what percentage of those do you believe would answer yes? I identify as America first. Okay. There. I mean, to me, to me, I mean, I'll give you my number. It's seventy percent. It's seventy to seventy-five percent. I, I, I just. 70% is what I just said. Okay, here's the number okay. we don't know. You ready? And, and you can mm-hmm. help me here. What percentage of Democrat primary voters identifies America first? Oh, I would, I would say probably uh, less, less than 5%. No, I'd, say, I'd say 20%. Okay, because I don't think anybody's identified what it is. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's fair. That, that's, that's fair. That's not criticism. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's very so, fair. So, well, right now it's right. Trump. I mean, Trump is the symbol. I mean, he's the essence. He's the. So you uh, just said his name, so I'm I'm gonna go. With it's okay <laughs> to say his name. <laughs> but I mean, the read. try. But I said his name because he is the essence of America first today. But you've listened long enough to have heard me say it can't be a one man movement. It can't be predicated on Trump now, then, and and forever. I mean, it just it it'll fail miserably. If it's centered right. around Donald Trump forever, I mean, there's no at way. At some point, to, he goes away. I mean, and, and can it sustain yeah. when he goes away? I mean, that that's what Jeff is wondering. That's what Thigpen always worried about. Thigpen accepted that Trump was a force of nature, but but he said, what happens when the guy's not there? Does this, does this realignment maintain? Does it sustain? Is there somebody else? To run the next leg of the um, of the race, and you know that that's 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 not criticism. It's just a question that nobody knows the answer right. to. So, so you brought up his name, and so when we talk about now, I can say his name. When Trump, when you when you identify as America first, right? You asked me what percentage of the Republican Party would identify as America first. I I said Trump has a death grip on thirty to forty percent of the Republican Party. They're never going to go anywhere else. The other sixty will say they're America first or like Donald Trump, but they don't really understand what it is. Okay. Is it, is it what Matt Gates is talking about? Well, to is, me, is, to is, me, is it's it more what man? Blake Masters and JD Vance and, and Peter Thiel are talking about. We're, so again, like Blake Masters is sitting, where's he sitting at home what right now? Uh, you think he's knitting? He's considering, <laughs> he's considering another run for Senate against Kerry Lake in Arizona. Yeah, what, which Carrie Lake, uh, I mean, these are people. Are they, they, these serious people? You don't think Blake Masters is a serious man? Um, I think Blake Masters has been picked by Peter Thiel, and I don't think Peter Thiel would pick him again. But that's not, the, that's not the question. Looking at America first, Peter Thiel is looking at America first and going, 
I don't recognize this, and I don't like it. Maybe he does. You'll I mean, acknowledge that. Well, I mean, maybe so. He, I, he I don't have any idea point. what Teal thinks. But but when I said serious people, I didn't say Carrie Lake. Right. I said J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, uh, a couple of others that I think have genuinely understood what the next step needs to be, where we need to go from here. But I don't. I didn't bring up Carrie Lake. So that that is, uh, if, if I would have given you any homework, next time you talk to Kahaley or your friends at the RNC, ask him what what our plan is. And and Bert wants to know the answer to that more than I do. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it, my man. <laughs> and I, it's Verd. What is Verd? That's kind of a Verd. thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. I, that's I mean, that, that, all. That's that, that, there's no criticism in that. I don't think. I mean, there are a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainties. I've never seen. I think if they had a, a stronger, cohesive message for America first, you they could appeal to a higher number of Democrats. I'm sure they could. I mean, I, I think it's twenty percent. So I, I don't disagree with what no, Jeff no, no, said. No, do I know that? No, I don't know Especially that it's twenty percent. If Trump was out of the well, picture, I mean, and that's the question, if you if you ask the average rank and file Democrat primary voter, what, what do you think of? I mean, it, uh, you would set it up. I mean, it would be push polling. I mean, there's no doubt it'd be push polling. But you would say, do you think China's got the best of America on foreign trade deals? Yeah. Do you think we've um, too many young men and women are injured as a result of going to wars that we should have been involved in. Yeah. I mean, you kind of lead them down that path. And then you pop the question, does that make you an America first or not? Right. And, Jeff, we can have that discussion in 2028 when Trump is out of the picture. But, but, but to Jeff's point, and Jeff's exactly right here, you can't get away from Trump right now. I mean, the Democrat and the Republican both equate or, 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 or basically – I mean, they, they look at America first and Trump is almost one of the same. Well, they are. I mean, I, I, as much as I'd love for them to be separated, as much as I'd love for there to be a firewall that says Trump here, America first there, and, and there's some overlap. No. I mean, Trump is the figure. He is the dominant, the most dominant political figure in America today is Donald Trump. Nobody denies that. I, I didn't say he's the most effective leader. I didn't say he's the best president there's ever been. He says that. I don't. Um but, but there's no denying he's the most dominant political figure in America because, once again, Rev, he embodies or symbolizes a political movement. Obama was a, a political revolutionary. There was a movement associated with Barack Obama. But Joe Biden's not that. Nobody argues that Biden's some revolutionary and, and generational political figure, <laughs> but, but nobody denies that Trump is that. Now, you can say, yeah, but he's taking the country in a dark place. I mean, I get that. I think there's a fair debate. Is Trump carrying the country into a into a dark place, into the abyss? I mean, I, I, those are very interesting questions to ponder and debates to have. But but I still believe that that America first, separate of Donald Trump, has a lot of attractiveness for rank and file Democrat working class men and women. I really believe that. And as much as they love the government, there's still some Democrats to go to work every day that don't care much for you know, intervention and globalism and, and some of these other things that they believe have negatively impacted their lives and existence. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning. Good morning. Um, hey, guys. Um, my, my vision of what America First is, you know, fiscal responsibility, you know, taking care of our border, you know, ensuring that, that we do the things that, that, that need to be done to make sure that the American uh, population is taken care of instead of the world. You know, we need to get out of this globalist idea, ideology. Yes, be benevolent and, and, and help 
on the international scene, but we need to focus on our American people and our American workers. That, that's 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 it. That, that's that's the bottom line. You know, people are tired of of, of you know seeing uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars going overseas, and and you know they're they're ignoring those that are sit right right inside of our borders. They're tired of of the the, the the crime you know crime increasing and nobody's doing anything about it. They're try they're tired of, of of just people being able to to you know riot and. and and you know you can you can have your disagreements, but do it peacefully. Um, and 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 like as I've said for years, you know, the control group has been there for 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 the last fifty years, and they're we're tired of this this war on poverty because it's not done anything, it's not done a thing, but 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 just cause people to be deeper and deeper in poverty, and 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 that that's that's America first for me. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one zero nine. Three seven wrote a couple of notes down during the break. Um, policy slash people. I think historically the GOP has felt it its purpose and it's honorable. Uh, I guess its mission statement is to promote and advocate for policies that help Republicans get elected. I mean that makes sense. I mean that that that's probably the right strategy to employ. Uh, you got a binary choice in this corner. You got a Republican in that corner. You got a Democrat. Who do you like? What are their policies? What do they stand for? What do they believe in? I think America first requires uh, an almost inversion. It's got to be, it can't be the policies that help Republicans get elected. It's got to be the policies that advantage the average American. To me, that's what it's about. It's not about policy to help get Republicans elected. Because to me, that's putting the party before the people. Why does a political party exist? I mean, does a political party exist to win elections or serve its people, its constituency? And, and that goes back to the misalignment, the, the asymmetrical relationship that, um, and, and the Democrats have had this before. I mean, it's not, I mean, it is, it is, I don't know if it's ever been this intense. I mean, in my lifetime, it's not. But we act like this is the first intense moment in American political history. I mean, we've had a lot of intense, we had duels by God, you know, back in the day. So we've had a lot of, um, I mean, we had guys, you know, senators stagger out of a lounge and fist fight in the in the street. Oh, the good old days. But um, but I I just think and and th- there's some vagueness there because you could pin me down and say, well, I mean, Jeff said, what does that mean? You're not answering the question. What does that What does that mean? Well, I'm I'm honest enough to say, I don't have all the answers. We're not cooking a cake. But there's not a recipe here. You know, my 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 wife cooks a banana pudding about every Thanksgiving. And she pulls out a little book, and it says exactly this much of that. And exactly, I mean, there is no playbook to this. But if historically the GOP, our party, the majority of our parties, sorry, Jeff, has been, you know, um, to advance policies that help Republicans win elections, and, and, and Drew McKissick will argue, well, how do you enact change if you don't win elections? Th- th- that's fair. I mean, that's, an amp- that's not a complaint, not a criticism. It's, it's a point to be made. But are the policies followed up on and do the policies empower the American worker, advance the prosperity of the American family, preserve uh, the American way of life? It's hard to argue that Biden's policies at the border are making life better for the average American. It's hard to argue that some of the uh, anti-police and anti-law enforcement rhetoric of the American political left it's making life better for, see, that's the one thing we fail to really understand. 
and I guess I fan these flames as much as anybody, Democrats don't want somebody hitting them in the head with a board. <laughs> I mean, Democrats don't enjoy their 401k seeing, you know, 30% decline. Democrats don't. I mean, a Democrat would rather finance their house at 4.5% than they had 7 and 3 quarter. A Democrat would rather a, a Ford or Chevrolet pickup cost forty or forty-five thousand dollars than seventy-five or eighty thousand. I mean, that's well, you know, it's not. Wow, the Republicans hate all these things about inflation and government debt and the explosion of spending. But the Democrats are dealing with the same things you deal with. I mean, there's not a there, there's a self-checkout line at Walmart, right? Or at Publix, or at Harris Teeter, or you know, Piggly Wiggly, wherever you choose to go. But there's not a hey, are you a registered Democrat or Republican? I'm a registered Republican. Okay, you go through this line. That's where the 10% inflation line goes. These Democrats are immune to that. No, Democrats are dealing with the same struggles that Republicans are. Maybe they have a different view on the climate. Maybe they have a little different view on, you know, how much is too much on entitlements or food stamps or some of these means and non-mean-tested welfare programs. But, but to believe that Republicans and Democrats live in these alternate universes when it comes to our daily lives? No. Um, people who work at the, at the government get paid every other week. I mean, there's not a day that Republicans get paid and a day that Democrats get paid. Um, you know, the hourly wage. Well, I mean, there's a Democrat hourly wage and a Republican hourly wage. The majority of these conflicts are based on some internal feelings that the majority of us have about government and what government should do, what it shouldn't do. How do I feel about Ukraine? How do I feel about, you know, globalism? Now, now, the one thing that the public has done is become unbelievably apathetic. We would rather, I'm going to be candid. You ready? You would rather me read about this stuff and tell you what to think than you had make your own mind up. But it, it amazes me. And I've told Rev this. The scariest part of this job is that people give a John Brown what I say. I mean, I'm in, I'm in, the, um, I'm in the sauna yesterday after my workout at the gym and a guy who's starting a business in town, uh, he's sitting at the bottom. I'm sitting up top. I'm, you know, somebody asked me a question about something. It was about the speakership. So I said, what's going to happen? Don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You don't know. Nobody knows. I said, well, I don't know. I don't have any idea. I don't think they'll make a, I mean, I, they'll make a motion, motion to vacate, vacate, but I think, you know, he'll be the speaker tomorrow. I was wrong, dead wrong. And, and the guy turns around and says, I've heard that voice before. You're the guy on the radio. You tell us what to do and how to do it. And I appreciate you a lot. I said, man, I'll tell you my opinion my perception of the way things are, but it's up to you to grab a computer and go on the Hill or Politico or the Wall Street Journal or, you know, uh, so some of these other sites that do the best they can at engaging and involving. You, you want a better country, get a more informed electorate. I mean, really and truly, you want a better nation, a nation that really and truly runs, and the government shut down. Here's the argument I'd make, and I made this argument yesterday. If the government were, were a well-oiled machine, <laughs> I would be concerned about it shutting down. But the government sucks. The government's a jalopy. I mean, the plug wires are off. The wheel's out of round, out of balance. The drive shaft's making a big noise. I don't know if we put any oil in it or not. I mean, that's the state of government today. So when government's not running or not, 843-661-0937. Josh, what do you make of all this? You've been mighty quiet over there this morning. What do you make of all uh, this unprecedented, uh, unprecedented, I don't know, circumstances we find ourselves in? Um, never before has an American president been indicted. Never before has a 
motion to vacate being um, successful in removing a speaker. I mean, it is it's political chaos. It's political controversy. It's, uh, here's my word again, it's a generational realignment. Well, I'll say that uh, I forget which caller made which point, but I, I overall I'd say I disagree with Verd. I think this is a good development because I don't know much about Kevin McCarthy, but um, I'm very anti-establishment. And again, I'm not I'm not a big Matt Gates fan either, but I do think I don't uh, McCarthy. I think you you brought up a point that I hadn't considered, which is that he was he wanted so badly to be the uh, speaker that he made all these deals he couldn't deliver on, which I do think there is some truth to that. However, I do also think a big part of it is that he never intended to in the first place. Because this kind of stuff has gone on for a long time. You know, like the Republicans have had majorities throughout, you know, my life. Like, uh, I don't remember the exact time and dates, but not important. And they never delivered. They always. What do you um, expect from Republicans? I mean, they never delivered means what? I expect them to show some balls. I mean, uh, the, <laughs> the, the Democrats get in. How about Nancy? And what? I don't you know. FCC's well, listening. That, that would be. Yeah. Okay. Let's not go. I mean, I just wondered when you said. I mean, well, well, yeah. You can't. So she, you're worried about the FCC now? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you kind of said. Yeah, Good no. job, Josh. Uh, yeah. Oh well. <laughs> That's how you don't get asked questions. See, right. when you, uh, fair I mean, enough. Yeah. When you, when you make me a little nervous, you know you play. Because <laughs> I looked at Rev like, can he say that? Yeah. Because if he can, I would have been saying it a long yeah, time ago. He, he maybe should have dumped himself. Rev, I on thought that was one of George Carlin's words. <laughs> I thought that was close. <laughs> showed some gumption. I think <laughs> he could say. I mean, I think testicles would have been appropriate. Right. But that's um, cojones. Know. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I wish the Republicans would show more cojones because uh, Josh they just don't seem satellite. Get... Josh, you do realize that <laughs> right. this show is terrestrial, <laughs> right? Right. I, I'm. Uh, only recently become aware of that. <laughs> okay, but I mean, this is not the Howard Stern show on, you know, uh, whatever satellite radio. I mean, this is a uh, a show broadcast. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> pretty much in the in, in in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I mean, yeah. pretty much. I mean, it, am I right, Rev? Exactly. I mean, right. we, we had a big lecture yesterday on Christianity and uh, you know the life of Christ, and and here we are today. You know, just throwing all that good work in the trash. Well, Jesus was flipping tables in the temple. He so was. I think it's he okay. was. I think it's okay to get upset about things. Okay. And and, and get Rev, did you dump me? Did you? No. Did you no, no okay. Me... So we're good. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let, let's go all back. Good, let's go good. back to the appropriate point. So, so you say they've never delivered. For the most part, yeah, they've not delivered. And, and, and you're insinuating they lack the testicular fortitude <laughs> to get this things these things done. What are the things you wish they would work harder on? What what are the accomplishments you're waiting on for the Republican Party to be good on or make good on? From what I've observed, this is my perspective. Okay. That Republicans get elected and the only thing they care about is re-election, which of course I'm not the first to say that, but you know, people say that about all politicians, but Democrats get in and they they work their butts off to get what they want done. They execute done. an agenda. Yes. And then so we have the, uh, the majority in the House right now and uh, it's, it's the House, right? Not the, mm-hmm. right. We have the majority in the House. And McCarthy's the speaker and we want uh, he he funded 
Biden's campaign, uh, you know, basically gave a blank check to Biden till the end of his first term with zero concessions. Why? Because, well, we just overturned Roe versus Wade. We don't want to turn off independence. And I get and you bring up the independence a lot and I get it, you know, former politician. But me personally, I'm sick and tired of hearing about the independence. I, I, I'm at the point where I'm OK with us just saying Let's build the wall. Let's let's use all the satellite tracking and whatever that they use to lock up all the J6ers to find all the illegal immigrants, <laughs> there you go. put them in a plane, and send it back. And and people will be like, oh, well, well what about the independence? I don't care. And if and if we get voted out, I'm okay with that, too, because so, then so, I think so things will get okay. so worse, eventually the boat will turn back around. I mean, around. and this is where you end up. This is, a, this is an age-old question in American politics. You're okay with being principled but not in power. Yes. So what matters about principles when you're not in power? I mean, you sleep better at night, I guess. But, I mean, uh, let's say the Republican Party finds itself and it becomes the most principled political party in in, in human history. I mean, it it really sticks to what it's got, these core principles and values, and you're not going to stray from those. I mean, it is what it is. And we'll lose elections wherever we have to lose elections, but we're not straying from these principles. Is that is that good with you? Are you okay with that? I am not okay with straying from the principles. Because I think you would agree that politics to some degree involves human interaction, um, influencing other human beings to believe you're better at this job than they are. I mean, it's almost like we, and, and I, I don't disagree. I mean, I, I think in, in, in the most simple way, we would like for politics to be cut and dry. Yeah. We, we would like for, I mean, you know, we, there's got to be, I mean, Warren Buffett said about, you know, you want to get them to balance the budget? Tell them they don't get paid if they don't balance the budget. They can't run for re-election if they don't balance the budget. But, but you know, human beings get involved. Human beings are, are just opinionated and they're influenced by things that maybe we shouldn't be. I mean, you are, I am, everybody Everybody here is, and that goes back to my point about, to me, and this is, I mean, I guess I'm an old hand at this. I mean, I'm not Mitch McConnell or, or Diane Feinstein, God rest her soul, but I mean, I've been around it for a while, and I think I have a decent understanding of it. I think the, the mistake the Republicans have made is trying to convince people that policy is, is, is the way to make their lives better, and I think we should go to the people first. I think Republicans historically have gone to think tanks and consultants. And said, hey, here's what we think. Here's what's poll tested. Build us a policy that we think we can sell to the people. Instead of going to the people and say, hey, help us build this policy. I mean, you, you working class uh, people in Ohio, uh, Indiana, Michigan, wherever, you know, um, we want to we want to consider you when we do these things. And and I and I've always felt that politics is about people. I mean, obviously, when when they go to the floor to vote on a on a piece of legislation. It's policy-oriented. I mean, you're not voting, hey, here's Dave's Baker legislation. Here's Josh with the weird last names uh, legislation. No, it's, 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 bill, it's Senate Bill 31 or it's House Bill 1077. And it's got a lot of sponsors and co-sponsors and some work was done here and there and yonder. But, but if America First is going to be successful, and I stand by my, uh, Riff thinks I'm wrong. I mean, Riff kind of agrees with Jeff more so than he agrees with me. I mean, I think there is a uh, an appetite in the Democrat uh, Party for America First. Now, 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 Trump is a different animal. I mean, they, you know, give the Democrats credit; they have 
I, the last great success of the Republican Party is to label Obamacare bad. Uh, it's just, you know, Obamacare. It's not the Affordable Care Act. Stop with that. It's, Ob- it's Obamacare. Oh, did a great marketing and branding job. The Democrats have done a similar job to convincing, you know, their part of it. This, this is a scary dude. I mean, this is an extreme guy. I wonder, I often wonder this. I'm a Democrat voter. I'm watching Trump. And he is crazy. And he's entertaining. And he says about 10 things and eight I agree with. <laughs> but I'm a Democrat. I can't tell anybody I agree with that. I'll get kicked out of the junior league. I'm a this year club. Well, you do that. And you also remember that gas prices were lower. Food prices were and, lower but, when but he you, was president. But you, you say that to yourself. Right. Oh, I mean, you, you, you don't get out and say, you know, when that Trump guy was president, it, it did seem like I had a little more money in my pocket. You would never admit that. No, but, but I've often wondered in their private moments, a fairly moderate Democrat looks at Trump for 30 minutes at a campaign rally and goes, he says a lot of things I agree with, man. He re- I mean, I, he says it in the most outlandish, crazy way imaginable. I, I just, and I think there are a lot more of those than we believe there are. Maybe. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, you're talking about primarying and you're talking about gerrymandering and these districts are supermajority Republican or supermajority um, Democrat. And somebody said earlier today, well, I mean, I think Verd may have said, well, you wake up one day with a Democrat speaker. Well, we will. It won't be next week. I can assure you with that. Because if you are a Republican of the House of Representatives and you vote to confirm a Democrat as Speaker of the House, you're done. You're done. I mean, there, there is no district that swingy. I can assure you of that. I mean, there, there is no district that moderate. I mean, you could not win a primary under any circumstance. No. So for those who parties. say, well, I mean, Bill Crystal's tweeting, when Akeem Jeffries is elected speaker next week with moderate Republican support, he should restore to Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer their capital hideaways and also follow House custom and courtesy in providing a hideaway to former Speaker McCarthy um, in victory, magnanimity. Uh, and, and that's just not going to happen. That's off the table. That's that's a guy who is just PO'd that the world has changed and he's been left out. He's been excluded. He's been one of these. I mean, he was Dan Quayle's chief of staff. Crystal's been one of these opinion leaders and thought provokers in the GOP for longer than he should have been. Um, there are, there, I mean, I, I, I'm going to say this. There is no telling how many young people are limping around America as a result of some of these wars we had no business in that Bill Crystal supported with every fiber of his being. I mean, I'm not saying he's a, he's a, he's a predator. I'm not saying he's a warmonger, but, but there are, I mean, he supported about every intervention America has ever considered as passionately, as passionately as he supported anything. And I mean, it's tragic that, that so many young men and women in our nation or not long, no longer here, or in some diminished self, or some physically diminished, or mentally in some cases, because people like Crystal saw and and basically hid behind the military-industrial complex, arguing that this is an American safety and security, and in our genuine best interest. Here's my concern about that: there will be a legitimate reason sooner than later to intervene, and when we don't trust those making those paramount decisions where do we go you see where i'm headed money to ukraine no well i mean there will be a legitimate reason in the not too distant future to really do something aggressive in securing america's um safety and and i worry about the people saying well that's the boy that cried wolf again 
and I'm just not willing to go there. And, and that's really the problem with, with the American government. It's lost its moral authority. It's not trustworthy. People don't believe what they say. Um, I can't speak, in, and we got to be careful here, Josh, that you and I and Dave don't get wrapped up in our own little bubbles. You know, that, that we believe this audience and what we do every day is reflective of the population in general. You said a second ago, I'm tired of hearing you talk about independent voters. I don't like talking about independent voters, but they're there, and they're real. And yep. and they make the difference and a there's lot a, of times. there's an ass of them. I can promise you that <laughs> in places that matter uh, mightily in some of these um in some of these swing states. They may be watching Seinfeld, but you know what? When you walk into a voting booth, there's not a place for a Seinfeld voter to vote that accounts one half vote and somebody who listens to Wake Up Carolina gets two votes. I mean that's just it's not weighted voting. The Seinfeld watchers vote counts absolutely as much as the the subscriber to the National Review, and it should. Uh, uh maybe it should. That's the story for, for, <laughs> for another day. Yeah, enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.